Hey there, listeners and lurkers. I'm Amy Johnston. And I'm Alan Johnston. And we're so happy that you're joining us for The Last Isle. This week, we'll be covering the 2001 movie, Session 9, directed by Brad Anderson, who also directed 2004's The Machinist and Trans-Siberian from 2008, and written by Brad Anderson and Stephen Jevedin. It is set in Danvers, Massachusetts, and follows a man and his crew as they clean asbestos from an abandoned asylum. There's a lot to get into here. So now, if you'll indulge me, a dramatic reading of the back of the box. It looms out of the woods like a dormant beast. Grand, imposing, abandoned and deteriorating. New Denver State Mental Hospital closed down for 15 years and is about to receive five new visitors. Donning protective gear, the men of Hazmat Elimination Co. venture into the eerily vast and vacant asylum that is filled with an evil and mysterious past. Rampant patient abuse, medieval medical procedures, and rumors of demonic possession are some of the many dark secrets the hospital holds. But then, so do each of the men. Hello, Gordon. I first saw this movie in college. I can't remember if I saw it in the theater, but I definitely remember watching it with a group of college friends, and it really got to me. And I gotta say, I'm excited to be covering a good old-fashioned, like, evil presence movie. Like I love supernatural horror and it all and all it entails. Um, we already had aliens. It's time to graduate to demons. Um, <laughs> but is it a demon? But is it a supernatural but, entity? Right. Oh, there's so much to talk about. Um, when do you, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? I don't remember how long ago it was. I know it was pretty well after it came out and it was because you had recommended it to me and you told me it was a psychological horror which that is totally my game i love things that fuck with my head and so i was i was like all right you know what i mean amy i know i have not always watched the movies that you recommend to me (laughs) because sometimes i'm just like sometimes they're really bad i don't care how long did it take me to watch napoleon dynamite after you first recommended it to me (laughs) a long time um but i did watch this one pretty shortly after you told me about it and uh i really like this movie this for the podcast this is only the second time i had watched it and i still yeah no i had only seen it once before Oh, man. Um, so no, this, I really enjoyed this rewatch. I enjoyed kind of dissecting it because, oh my God, same. There's movies that you watch and the first time you're like, yeah, it's a good movie. But then the more you think about them, you're like, but why was it a good movie? And then be- after I kind of did a deep dive into like fan theories on this movie yeah. and all sorts of other stuff, it made me appreciate it even oh more. My God, I know. Um, yes. but I, yeah, so this was a fun one for sure. It was a, a fun one. Before we jump in, here at The Last Isle, we want to remain mindful of sensitive topics, so we are offering a content warning for the following segment. The following movie analysis deals with sensitive topics. There will be discussions of abuse of patients in the hospital's described history, as well as discussions of abuse both physical and sexual. Listener discretion is strongly advised. Enjoy the rest of our podcast, and thank you listeners and lurkers. Caution. Spoilers ahead. Against a black screen, we hear the sound of dripping water 
and it has started audio static. The movie opens with a long camera shot pushing down an abandoned asylum corridor. A lone antique hospital wheelchair sits at the end of the hall. We cut to a man about 50 or so sitting in a car playing with a car radio. Gordon, played by Peter Mullen, rapidly turns the dial to tune the station and stares into space. Phil, played by David Caruso, talks barely above a baritone whisper about finding something nice on the radio. I already feel weird and disoriented. It's too bright outside and we feel like we just woke up here. It's already off-putting. And I feel one thing, the way they shot this was really, really cool at the beginning because you do not see Phil at first. So you just see um, Gordon sitting in the driver's seat and you just hear Phil's voice, but we don't know that it's Phil. So it almost seems like he's hearing a voice or like that, like maybe that's his inner inner voice talking to himself of course we find out later it's not because he has a beautiful scottish accent and and we know that but at first you're just like oh god like yeah you know like what's going on and talking to himself right like this is his inner monologue or whatever um and then not not until the camera moves over to the passenger seat and you see phil do you realize there's someone in the in the van with him so it it was i feel like that just kind of sets up the movie right there for the kind of confusion that's going to happen right and then it's so jarring because then it's just like david caruso on screen and it's like the opening of csi (laughs) yeah Um, Phil tells Gordon that he looks tired, um, and also asks Gordon if he's tired because he was feeding his daughter. So we find he has an infant. Gordon says no, and that his daughter still has the ear infection. Phil seems surprised by this and says that Emma had the ear infection since her christening. Phil asks Gordon how Wendy is doing. We get the impression that Wendy is Gordon's wife. Gordon tells Phil that Wendy is tired, same as Gordon. Phil tells Gordon if he needs anything, just to let him know that he's here. He says, hang in there, man. You're going to be fine. It's super ambiguous. We don't really know what's happening, but we know that he's tired. Uh, The next shot is at a large property gate with the sign that says, no trespassing, official business only, and Danvers State Hospital. A security guard is standing by the property gate and his vehicle, and is speaking on the phone. He hangs up after saying, okay, I'll tell him. Dude was using a car phone, not a cell phone, (laughs) a car phone. In case you had any wonders as to when this movie came out, old tech car phone. He walks up to Gordon and Phil in a bright red van that reads Hazmat Elimination Co. Asbestos Abatement Professionals. The security guard stands outside of the open driver's side window and tells Gordon and Phil it was Bill Griggs and that he's getting off the ramp and he'll be here in a minute. The men thank the security guard, who turns to walk away, but Phil inquires about when the hospital was actually closed. 1985, the security guard responds. Phil goes on to say, because he's curious why the guard is carrying a firearm, I mean, it's not like people are trying to get out. The security guard says, no, not out, in. You know, kids, delinquents, homeless. He then talks about how the patients ended up on the street when the place closed down. And this happened in hospitals a lot all over the country. It was the Community Mental Health Act of 1963 that was passed during Kennedy's administration. And this is what this is what led to a lot of people getting displaced. It didn't go according to plan. <laughs> Moving on. Moving on. Moving on. The security set the security guard says the patients sometimes 
come back and that he found half a dozen of them squatting in there last spring. Uh, next, Gordon and Phil drive down a secluded road that leads up to the sprawling hospital. They talk about the job. Phil asks if they are the first in line, and Gordon responds that the American Yankees were there last week. Phil asks about the bid for the job, and apparently the Yankees' bid was fast and low. Phil seems concerned. He reminds Gordon that Griggs likes jobs fast, and Gordon reminds Phil that he likes job, jobs done safe. Phil says, we cannot gamble with this. Do you want me to talk to him? Uh, Gordon responds, Phil, I know what I'm doing, and I'll spare, I'll spare you my terrible attempt at discussion. Because <laughs> I really, because it's great, but I... No, we're bad at it. <laughs> yeah, I'm really bad at it. Uh, but Gordon is clearly a man of integrity in his work, like a hardworking father with scruples. Like you get that. Like mm-hmm. he's not gonna, he's not gonna like put anybody in danger just to get a, a job done fast. Phil looks out Gordon's driver's side window and says, holy shit, look at this place. As a red brick building complete with high pitched roofs and a steeple come into view. It's like, it's big and it's old. Thick masses of ivy crawl up the building. Um, Though it it gives off beauty, it is not creep factor to me at all. It is a gorgeous part of the country, and my Texas ass wants to go to Yeah, for real. Like, I'm looking at this hospital, and I'm like, how is it scary? Like, it's totally gorgeous, and I want to look at it. No, me too. So let me give a little bit of history of the Danvers State Hospital. So um, it was opened in 19... I'm sorry. It was opened in 1878. Um, Initially, it was to provide residential treatment for the mentally ill, but they expanded services over the years to include both a training program for nurses and a research lab. Um, Danvers, Massachusetts was not always known as Danvers. It used to be Salem Village. Salem Village was one of the sites where the Salem witch trials took place. Oh, my God. The hill that the hospital is built on is called Hathorne Hill. Now, John Hathorne was one of the judges who presided over the trial. So this area is steeped in dark American history. Mm, lots of lots of violence against women. Yeah, I, I know. It's great. So the so if you if, I mean, if you're, you know, believe in this kind of thing, like that's already kind of solid ground. Yeah. Where this is where this hospital is built. Yeah. Danvers had an official capacity when it was designed and built of 450 patients. Yeah. But at its largest capacity, it housed over 2000. They were living in the halls. They were living in tunnels beneath the building. It, I mean, they were just, it was extremely overcrowded and the abuses and the neglect that were taking place. There was horrible. Yeah. Um, HP Lovecraft used Danvers State Hospital as inspiration for his Arkham Sanitarium that appeared in some of his stories. Wow. So this this building has incredible spooky history. Yeah. The script that um, Brad Anderson and Stephen Jevedin wrote was specifically written to be filmed at Danvers. Wow. Um, I think they said Brand- Brad Anderson drove by it every day on his way to work or whatever. And so he just, he was very inspired just by the sight of the building, which is why I love the reveal here where right. Phil's like, holy shit, look at this place. It, 
the building is a character in this movie. Oh, it absolutely is a character uh, in this movie. And then one last thing, and this is very sad. Much of the building has since been demolished for apartments. I'm like, oh, there's yeah. still, there's still like, I think part of the main admin building is there. And then maybe like a, a part of a wing or something, but like. They were trying to get it on the National Historical Registry of Places. Interesting. Yeah. That comes into play in this movie. Yeah. Interesting. So. Very interesting. So, yeah, they did. There's their, some historical, hi- there's some historic, like, uh, they did their history. Oh, I have even more later. Um, But, yeah, yeah they're, they did their research when they were writing the script and used a lot of, a lot of uh, facts. It's yeah. really great. We next hear Bill Griggs, played by Paul Guilfoyle introduced the building over glamour shots of the creepy overgrown facility. 1871, that's when she went up, gentlemen. We call her the Kirkbride Building, named after Dr. Thomas Kirkbride. The men walk down one of the corridors of the Danvers State Hospital. It's a pretty simple layout if you consider it's a giant flying mat. The main staff building is in the middle. It's the bat's body. And the slanting off of each side are these giant crooked bat wings. Okay, so like a bat. there is something to this. What uh, Griggs is saying here is true. The bat design is part of what's called the Kirkbride Plan. The Kirkbride Plan was used for many psychiatric hospitals in the U.S. in the 1900s. Um, part of the list of things in the Kirkbride Plan the building had to be built in the country, um, but it had to be accessible at all seasons. It had to be set on grounds of at least 100 acres. Oh, my God. And house a maximum of 250 patients. Well, we already know that Kirkbride, or I'm sorry, that Danvers was designed to hold 450. So he already broke his own rule a little bit, but okay. Yeah. If you look at a building that huge, you're like only 250 or 450 patients. It's a huge building. It was to be comprised of eight wards, separated according to gender, and built according to other specifications like size, location, and material of the accommodations. It was to be organized with wings flanking the Central Administration Building, housed the most excited patients in the end or outermost wings, so the most disturbed patients would be housed at the outside or the right. wing. I think he calls them the wing tips in the movie. Right. Um, and then provide an abundance of pure fresh air, which I mean, there's nothing but pure fresh air around this building. Right. I kind of want to go breathe it. <laughs> I know. I'm like, it's got to be better than this hot ass Texas air, right. but whatever. <laughs> right. I mean, I don't want the asbestos, but sure. Well, no, the outside, just the outside air. He mentions the place listed in the National Historic Registry. That's why we can't tear it down, he says. He'd love to, but the town manager wants to reclaim it. Bill stops the walking tour of the halls and looks into an open room and says, whoa, what the fuck is that? Griggs tells him the two metal tubs sitting, still holding water somehow, gross, are hydrotherapy tanks. If a staff member needed to calm down a patient, they just put them into freezing water or a lobotomy. So just real quick, the tubs here, there were very, very few things added to the set by the, like, by the filmmakers. Mm -hmm. This hydrotherapy tub was one of them. And then there were like a few other little things, I think, in a scene later where, um, you know, there's kind of like an admin room with a bunch of tapes. Mm -hmm. Some of that was added later. But they kind of scrounged stuff from around the parts of the building they had access to and just used that. But so the hydrotherapy tub might seem out of place because it was it didn't come with the building. But almost everything that you see in the film was already 
in Danvers. He uh, goes on to say prefrontal lobotomies were perfected here at Danvers. Gordon, who seems visibly shaken by the uncomfortable subject, asks Greg's to show them the problem areas. So he's like not having it. He's like, great, cool story. I just want to do the job. I don't need to know about ice picks in my head. Thank you. It's very liminal spacey in here. I love it. And the walkthrough tour has like big intro into the shiny energy. I don't oh, know if you very get much. Kubrick energy from it, but it's like he's walking through, he's showing them the quarters, he's talking about the history of it. And I think that's that plays right back to what, you know, in The Shining, the Overlook was a character in the film. And For this sure. this that goes right along with I feel like Danvers Hospital is a character in this yeah. film. For sure. Bill walks them through an enormous kitchen and responds to Phil's comment that you could feed a fucking army in here by telling him that the hospital was self con- was like a self-contained town. He said there's a church, movie theater, bowling alley, and they even had a cemetery with numbers instead of headstones. And he chuckles. Dude's kind of a dick. I don't <laughs> Yeah. Greg stops and what was once the cafeteria and designates the area as slated to be the municipal archives. Phil asks if there will be much foot traffic, and he and Gordon explain that the tiles have to be pulled immediately, that they're deadly and full of asbestos. Greg, seemingly surprised, mentions that the Yankees didn't mention that. Gordon insists that they should have because it's standard. Greg's next shows them Ward C, the old female ward, each wing is made up of four wards, just as you had mentioned earlier. And he goes through wards. wards he says, there's four wards. <laughs> there's four wards, yes. There's four wards. Very, very Massachusetts. It's your cousin. From Boston. <laughs> right. Um, so he says there's wards A, B, C, and D. Uh, ward A, which they call the wingtip, is the farthest away from the staff building. This is where they kept the extreme patients. And... Uh, Phil mentions something here about like the nurses wanting to be as far away from the the patients as the like the worst patients as possible or like keeping the most dangerous ones away from the staff. Uh, we see very little in the dark ward, but hear puddles splashing as the men walk through. And he said, "Do you know what they called Ward A? It's the Snake Pit." Greg says, "If they follow a, a hall, it'll take them down to Ward C." but he wouldn't walk on the floor because it's water damaged. Phil inquires how they will get over towards C and Griggs can be heard pointing him in the right direction. Gordon, however, spots a lone chair from the very first shot of the movie, the old decrepit broken down hospital chair. And he seems affected by it in some eerie way. The camera locks onto Gordon's far away expression a sound like a deteriorated recording begins to play, and an otherworldly voice simply says, Hello, Gordon. Two things. First of all, the use of... Let's talk about the score of the movie. So the score, if you can even call it that, was done by Rob Millis and Jeffrey Taylor, who were... They called themselves the Climax Golden Twins. What I mean, whatever. Um, it's less of a score and more of like this tonal accompaniment like it's not really songs and they kind of talked about it like they weren't after writing 
a song or a score for this movie. It's all very tonal. It's very dissonant. It's very jarring. It absolutely adds to like the creepy atmosphere yeah. of of the movie. And I love the use of sound in this movie. Um, the second thing here, so we, you know, Gordon hears the voice say, "Hello, Gordon." And you're like, is this sleep deprivation? I mean, obviously he looked exhausted when Phil was talking to him in the van. And so yeah, you're like, well, it's it, it's strange. You're like, where's this coming from? Yeah, it seems like he's definitely under some kind of stress. <laughs> you think? <laughs> like the, the, But, I mean, we also remember he has a, a young child at home. And if yeah. it's a young child with an ear infection, that's a screaming baby like 24 hours a day. So I get yeah. it. I mean, um. No, I don't get it. I don't get it. No, we actually don't get <laughs> I it. I don't get it, actually. Gordon whips his head around to Phil as he calls out Gordy and tells him to come on. There's a few more stops on the why do we have this much building set up for a movie tour? <laughs> and I'm sure none of it will come back later. No, of course not. Like, he, he goes through, he labels all of the things. He gives all of the names out of all of the places they are. But I'm like, do I have to write all of this? Like, it requires a map, and I don't. Right. Um, well, he mentions that his wife, like, um, Griggs mentions that his wife is the town historian. historian. Yeah. And there's one point, I don't know if we've gotten to it yet, where he's, I think Gordon says, like, nah, come on, like, you don't need to tell us more about the section or whatever. And he looks sad. Like, he wants to tell them everything he knows. I don't know if he just wants to show off his big brain or what. I don't know. But he's just like, oh, he's you sure? He's prepared. <laughs> okay. He's, like, prepared for this tour. He's really excited about it. Yeah. Um, And it seems like that may be his tendency. Greg, Greg seems like he, the type that likes to talk. Well, he has to give, you know, a little bit of Greg's position. Greg's position. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. I actually love this movie and the casual way they walk through the building and Gordon points out what needs to be fixed. It feels very real and sleepy. It's not boring to me. It makes me feel more uneasy. He's very job centric. He's very job centric, but it, and it, but it feels, I feel almost like a fly on the wall watching a man do his actual job. Yeah. It does not feel active. No, no, no. You're totally right. Griggs continues to talk about the future of the facility, pointing out the solarium, the municipal town hall, says some some cheesy line about reclaiming the town's dark past to build a brighter future or something like that. They get to that room and Gordon points out something called crocodile, oh no, no, I'm going to butcher this, crocodile, 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 but they call it crocodile. Right. It's like nuclear nuclear. Right. So the next thing out of Phil's mouth is crocodile, which is real. And I looked it up. Uh, but him and Gordon exchange looks and talk about how bad it is and how they'll have to seal, how they would suggest sealing off the whole area. They appear to be trying to work Griggs just a little bit. I can't, I can't really tell. It almost seems like maybe crocodile isn't a, isn't well, a problem. you said you looked it up. I didn't. What? It's the most absolute most deadly strain of asbestos oh, okay. out there like it's it if it's you the stuff that gives you like the mesothelioma or whatever right. if like, you encounter it you leave like you know oh, okay. you don't fuck with it but they seem to, i don't know you know i maybe they're trying to maybe they're trying to drive up the price i can't really tell yeah if like gordon's being sincere or if he's trying to like 
Kind or of just, not, or not just like nodding to him, like don't say anything. But I'm trying to jack the price up by saying yeah, this right now. I couldn't really tell here. Yeah. Um, but knowing that they're competing for the contract, I can understand the exchange. Griggs cuts t- to the chase. How long is it going to take to clear out the parts of the asylum and get it ready for contractors to come in? Phil says three weeks minimum, but Gordon chimes in with two weeks. Mr. Scruples is uh, not so scrupulous about safety. <laughs> Scrupuly. <laughs> Griggs questions whether it's two or three, and Gordon re- reiterates it's two weeks. Um, when they turn to leave, uh, and in the con- consultation... Phil stops at the open room again and asks, what's this? Greg says, what are you checking in, Phil? And then tells him about seclusions. The walls inside the small room are plastered with yellow and disintegrating collages. There appear to be family photos, medical drawings of muscles and circulatory systems. As Garden, as Gordon's, I don't know why I keep wanting to call him Garden. <laughs> You're not Irish. He's Scottish, so I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> As Gordon studies the walls carefully, a few words can be read in this section. Above a picture of a woman holding a baby, the words, suddenly it's going to dawn on you. On the wall, Gordon is studying one clipping that says, a man of peace, an act of violence. Another says, because my heart belongs to daddy. It was part of some therapy that was big in the uh, 70s, Griggs continues. Art therapy, creative expression, you know, it helped him with their self-esteem and made him feel good about themselves more at home. He adds creepy, huh? And then jokes that there's a picture of him from summer camp in there somewhere on that crowded decaying wall. All I can say about this this collage is I want a high-res print of this collage on my wall. It's so so creepy. I want to actually, I spent so much time trying not to study all of it i know there's so much i have got to move on but there if you pause it and look at it there's so much to look and investigate and there's messages all throughout and the art designers on this film like absolutely killed it with these collages and i do i want like a high-res print of that whole wall somewhere on the wall in my house so i can just be creeped out by it i know phil asks what griggs thinks is wrong with this one and uh, I guess talking about the woman inside, the whoever lived in that room. Greg says he doesn't know as the camera pans to the detail of a grainy black and white photograph of five corpses laying in the ground inside of five narrow pine boxes. The clipping above the photo says night people. I love that. I love that. And I want to know where that came from, that picture and that idea. We next see the three men exiting the building and heading back out to the grounds. Greg suggests that Gordon checks out the cemetery, mentioning that there's over 750 bodies buried there. Phil peeks his head out, interrupting Greg's, and says that he left his bag behind, and then heads back into the middle of the Batwing to get it. Griggs and Gordon continue to walk towards their vehicles, and Greg says he doesn't think that he ever congratulated Wendy and Gordon on their new addition. He says he knows how long they've been, well, whatever. So apparently they were trying for a while to have their baby. Yeah, me and Elizabeth are just so happy for you. So we get the impression that Gordon and Wendy, like, struggled conceiving. Gordon pulls out his wallet to show Griggs a picture of Emma. And Griggs responds with awes and uh, admires the picture. As he is admiring the uh, picture, Gordon says that he'll match the Yankees' bid. 
Griggs responds that this is not how the bidding process normally works and advises Gordon that the paperwork is due on his desk on Friday. Gordon says that he knows, but he insists that he can get it on Monday and be out the following Monday. Griggs challenges, I thought you said one week. Gordon, who's almost manic at this point, says, I've got four good guys. I'll hire another one one week and then we're gone. He seems different. Like it doesn't. He seems desperate. He seems desperate. Yeah. And he wasn't really showing that desperation in front of Phil. But now that Phil has gone back inside to get his bag, it's like he's willing to do anything to get this job. So there is a sense of desperation here. For sure. Griggs concedes that one week is fast, and he can, as he considers momentarily, Gordon pleads, I'm good for it. You know I'm good for it. And he says, I need this job. The scene cuts to Phil walking into the room where he left his work bag, the seclusion. And when he looks in, the camera switches to the close-up of a photo, a side-by-side of an old woman sitting in a chair holding a doll, like a porcelain doll. And in the adjacent frame, a chimpanzee delicately holding something tattered and small about the size of a small doll. I never paid very close attention before, but upon closer inspection, it appears to be a chimpanzee holding and mourning a dead adolescent cat of some kind or their child. Oh, to me, it looks like it's it's a baby, a baby chimp and could, yeah. a dead baby chimp. Which, yeah. they, which I looked that up and historically chimpanzees will... Yeah. Above the magazine clipped text, everybody thought I was nuts. I wouldn't think this would be terribly a terribly important shot. This, as in most of the movie, I feel like you are supposed to key in on words like this. It's mm-hmm. not an accident. Mm-hmm. I was thinking in the beginning, I was like getting a Kubrick, in, Kubrick inspiration feeling with this movie. And I will get a little more into that later. But I have to say this is one of the moments where you appreciate watching the movie more than once. Al and I refer to these as no phone movies. Yeah. We like, no, no, no. We're no phoning this movie because you will definitely miss something. If you're looking at your phone or dealing with your dogs or whatever, you have to no phone this movie. Yeah. So Jevin says that these rooms were curated with a purpose. There's a hint that those in the know will appreciate going back through these scenes in front of the collages used throughout the movie with, with a fine tooth comb. So in the next scene, uh, which indicates night, we see a close-up of Gordon's hand looking through photos of Emma's christening. She's very upset and clearly screaming in the first photo. Wendy consoles her softly, and Gordon appears to be kissing his wife and daughter's hands. It's really, like, delicate and sweet. In the next picture, his focus shifts from the happy couple holding Emma to Wendy alone. And the the next picture shows Emma... As Gordon stares down at the photo, Emma can be heard crying. The camera reveals Gordon is looking down from inside of his own vehicle and through his driver's side window. Wendy is at their home across a busy street. Wendy is attempting to water her garden, but is interrupted by Emma's crying. Emma sits out on a small patch of grass in a baby swing. She continues to wail next to a barking dog that is tied to a tree. Wendy scoops Emma up from her swing, Gordon looks up from his photos and across at his wife, who catches his gaze and makes sort of a seriously face, but like way more exhausted. When Gordon just continues to look at her, Wendy smiles awkwardly at him and takes Emma inside. But she doesn't smile like, hi, oh, you're home, honey. Hey, I see you over there. She's just like, hey, like, 
like yeah. kind of a dejected yeah. type smile. Yeah, yeah. yeah. She and doesn't look. She doesn't look happy to have him there. Although I'm sorry if I was dealing with a screaming baby and that fucking dog all well, day. Apparently, a screaming baby with an ear infection. Right, but if. I was dealing with that screaming baby and that dog all day. I would be elated if somebody was coming home to relieve me. Yeah. I think I'd I'd also be a little pissed if I looked across the street and they were just looking at pictures in their car. Like, can you get that? I don't know if she saw him looking at the pictures, but yeah, like, hi, yes, I see you. Could you get out and help me, please? Yeah. Um, Maybe I've just been watching too much, uh, Everybody loves Raymond, but like, Deborah would have like had his ass out of the vehicle by the she ear already. She would have pulled him out by the collar and dragged him across the right. street. Gordon breathes sort of panic attacky and like sighs. This is really strange because he he seems to be having issues with anxiety. Yeah, I think the stress is just breathing really super heavy. Seems mm-hmm. to be overtaken by anxiety here, but then he sighs and reaches for his work bag that contains champagne, flowers assorted groceries like oreos and peanut butter and starts to walk uh starts to head inside over the weirdest soundstage recording of wendy i'm sorry but this soundstage recording is like our town it's (laughs) hi gordon flowers what's the occasion yeah and it's so okay i'm sorry i don't know if this is just me i can usually look at a person and be like that voice did not come out of that face that is not that lady's voice. There's no way. There's just no way. So why they didn't get that actress to just record it? It I it was not to me this was the most jarring part of the movie. <laughs> like it's like a bad video game like voice acting. It's well, not good. They're lovely. Yeah. Well, it's the occasion, Gordon. Yeah, it's, it's so yeah. bad. Um that cross it's with this blood curdling scream and a machine whirring before we're jumped into the next scene of a hazmat suit wearing man walking away from a loud gas generator chunking away electric lights are buzzing and lighting the once darkened hall the next shot reveals plastic sheeting and the man we saw walking away from the generator comes in all douche walking and strutting and smacking stuff I'm not kidding. Like, no, I know. Walking in, and he's all strutty. Yeah, fuck this thing, and I hate that right. over there. And you're like, oh, yeah. Uh, okay. Ah, uh, yes, there's the comic relief. Jenny's up and running. Sir, a muffled Hank played by Josh Lucas, mock soldier salutes his respirator and face shield. Take the mask off, Gordon orders, uh, more annoyed than authoritative. Hank wants to know, are the ACM levels safe, sir? Phil shouts from the back of the room to take it off, dickhead. Gordon, wasting no time, tells Hank to go down to the tunnel, hang the glove bags near the ducks they looked at, and blah blah use the green slime. Hank confirms it should be red slime, right? Because the ducks that they looked at were hazardous. Gordon, who is preoccupied, says, yeah, yeah, right, red. Thorough garden is not so thorough. Something is happening. So Hank strolls over to Phil to greet him and say that Amy says hi. Innocently enough, but Phil's retort of keep it up dickhead indicates there's more than just friendly greeting. Yeah, a little tiny bit of bad blood there, maybe. Hank continues that Amy wanted Phil to know that she said hi while she was laying in bed. And okay, okay, I got it. I mean, it's it's spelled (laughs) out out later, but Amy used to be with Phil. It's not subtle. Uh, Phil whispers, keep it up. 
hey, I got it up. That's the problem, right? Oh, boys. Oh, just men and their dongs. I uh, just. Oh, boy. Anyway, Gordon silently watches the exchange and then turns back to his work, taping the tarp down for the clean room. The next characters we meet are young mullet-headed Jeff, played by Brendan Sexton III, and who I remember is the punk CD-stealing kid from Empire Records. Empire Records, yep. We also meet Mike, who is played by Stephen Jevedin, and who has a very important role as a sort of embedded observer into the movie. Yeah. And I'll get into that. Jeff plugs a large boombox into the power strip and asks how long Mike has been working for his Uncle Gordon, and nepotism aside, this dude definitely sells the typical clueless nephew. He's young. Oh, God, yes. He looks green. <laughs> Mike ignores Jeff dragging the, stere- uh, dragging the stereo across the room and answers five whole years. So is he a slave driver or what? Jeff inquires as he opens the CD compartment and lowers a burned CD into the reader. Mike answers that Gordon is a very reasonable man. Mike claims that he is the slave driver. He goes on to lay down just a couple of rules, though. Safety first, get the job done second, and he looks brows lowered at the back of Jeff's mullet and says, no drugs on the job, dude. (laughs) Anybody willing to sport that haircut, I guess. Well, in 2001, because now mullets are so back for some reason. But but not not at this point. Not when this came out. No, no, no. Um, Jeff, seemingly having heard none of Mike's list, literally woohoos as his his screaming metal rock band plays on his boombox. This kid drives an airbrushed van with a Pegasus on it. No, I think he wants to. I don't even think he can afford one yet. This kid got in trouble for lighting his desk on fire once. This kid has been in four different garage bands with three groups of friends, and they've all ended in a fist fight. Yes. (laughs) This kid leaves farts in his friend's cars as a party gift. (laughs) He's that type of dude. So what the hell is that, Mike says, to uh, Jeff's music? So you're going to show me the ropes or what? Jeff says, like hearing none of it. This kid's a stoner and he's heard nothing. <laughs> Hank, douche, whoever, hoosh. Hoosh. Yep. <laughs> hoosh, it's hoosh now. No, it's Hank. It's hoosh. Hoosh comes walking. <laughs> Don't call him hoosh. God damn it, Amy. You cannot call him hoosh the rest of this podcast. <laughs> you can't. So hoosh comes walking. <laughs> Hank comes walking in to pull out, like, pulling out a cigarette from a soft pack to the loud music and glances in Jeff's direction. And he goes, is this the new guy? Mike says they call it a Jeff and it's it's Gordon's nephew. Hank approaches Jeff, sizing him up. And he goes, Mike didn't tell you about these. You can't have these. Jeff says, why not? Smiling nervously and folds his arm past, folds his arms passively. Rule one, music creates sonic vibrations. Vibrations jiggle the spooge dust in the air. Gets into the air, gets into your lungs. He asks if this is the music Jeff is planning on listening to and yells dramatically, are you trying to kill us all? Uh, Hank, I 
Hank because I had to correct it from Hoosh because I did actually write this down. Did you actually type Hoosh I the did. rest of the thing? Not the rest of the oh. thing. A few times I typed Hoosh because I cannot I cannot not run a joke into the ground as a celebrated type Hoosh. Um, tells Jeff to turn it off and play Yanni or John Tesh or something. Mike smiles to himself as he listens to Hank scare the boy. He exits the scene telling Mike that he'll see him at lunch and it's going down deep, something like that. At lunch, Gordon faces up to the sun with his eyes closed. He sits inside the back of the cleaning van on the front property of the Danvers State Hospital. You know, Gordo, you finally landed the perfect gig. Hank chuckles. Next time someone tells you what we do is crazy, just tell them that you work in an insane asylum. Phil responds that Hank might actually want to be grateful and then informs him that he's about to make some decent money. When Hank seems skeptical, Phil turns to Gordon and announces, you didn't tell him? Gordon tells Phil to tell Hank and his eyes are still closed. He's just, it's like he cannot get enough sleep no matter how hard he tries. So he's just going to sleep at lunch. Well, if you notice here too, he's kind of sitting on the van and he's like absentmindedly rubbing his leg. Oh, no, I didn't know. See, yeah. I didn't notice Which that. Which will come back later. Yes, it absolutely does. So Phil informs the men that there's a $10,000 bonus. Gordon worked it out with the city. And when Hank asks what the catch is, Phil says that the job has to be done on the 13th, meaning like one week. Hank protests that Gordon knows that they have at least a two-week job. Phil says that they know and that they're going to work their asses off. When Hank sasses 10000 apiece, Phil offers to take him right back to the airport. Hank asks if Phil is going to take Amy to the airport, and Phil says that Amy does like to travel, and then both of them pull rulers out of their pocket. <laughs> I mean, they don't, but practically. it's uh, yeah, The dynamic between those two is just... Great. It gets exhausting after it a does. while, though. But we'll never get to know who's is bigger because the security guard interrupts the bromant to deliver the gate keys to the property, lamenting that 15 years really does a number on a place. Then he says that there used to be over 2,400 patients here at one point. Jeff asks why the place got closed down, and the security guard talks briefly about budget cuts and deinstitutionalization. Jeff asks about the pa- asks if all the patients were just dumped out on the street. But the security guard clarifies that some of them went into home care programs. Hank jokes that all the loonies were let out into the world and we got the keys to the loony bin boys. Mike chimes in that it wasn't just budget cuts. And Hank asks then what was then what was it, Mike, as he apathetically lights a cigarette. Mike says that it was the Patricia Willard scandal of 1984. And he describes a super unnecessarily graphic tale of a young woman who, with the help of her treatment, began to have memories of sexual abuse from her parents during private parties and satanic rituals. As Mike narrates this terrible tale, Gordon looks absently at the standard old-school Nokia-type phone. The label reads home, and Gordon appears to be considering connecting the call, but doesn't. The sordid description of abuse continues against the backdrop of several B-roll shots of interiors of the hospital, abandoned children's toys, peeled and decayed mural of a droopy dog, bees happily buzz on a bush outside in the sun, and as Mike darkens the story further and talks about fetuses, the imagery of various bugs doing creepy bug shit, uh, culminating in a a spider attacking a cricket in her web, and Gordon shouting enough. So... 
we'll talk a little bit here about so Mike mentions the Patricia Willard case. That is not a real case. That is not a real patient. But this story he tells is based on other real life cases. Um, if you want to go deeper and look this up to read more, you can look up Carol Felstead or Carol Myers. You can look up a book named Michelle Remembers about Michelle Smith. I believe uh, they were even on Oprah. But basically, this all comes down to repressed memory therapy, which has been largely discredited. But in the 80s, it was huge. These psychologists and psychiatrists were doing what they called repressed memory therapy, where they were saying, you know, your trauma, the source of your trauma is repressed. We're going to bring these memories to the surface. And there were all these quote, memories that were coming up about what they called satanic ritual abuse. These did not happen. This was a huge part of what's called the satanic panic in the 80s. Yes. Um, I was so, you'd bring that up. Yes. So if you want to do more reading about what Mike's talking about in this movie, go look up satanic panic. Go look up um, satanic ritual abuse cases. Um, they're not real. The details that these patients would come out with were absolutely horrifying, but none of it was real. So the story Mike tells here, and he kind of says at the end, you know, they realized it was all made up. Yeah. Um, but those are the kind of details that will come out of the cases. So if you have a sensitivity to things like sexual and child abuse, I don't advise you go do any further research, but it's fascinating it's fascinating how many there were. I know. It's, it's amazing how widespread this was. Horrific experience. And it wasn't just adults. There was this rash of daycares. There was one called the McMartin case. These people got convicted for sexual abuse, you know, and satanic ritualistic abuse of children in their care in this daycare center. It never happened. But it all goes back to the suggestibility of people, both kids and adults, and Oh my gosh, it's it's, it's a such a huge yeah. rabbit hole, it's like, guys. It's like you could pull any thread in this movie and just go forever on it. Mm -hmm. So that's um, so why this is going to be a long episode because we have so much to say. It will be. So these treatments led to Patricia receiving false memories, and in Mike's story, Patricia's parents sued the hospital as a result, and the hospital closed down shortly after. In the next scene, Jeff's, Jeff asks how Mike knows so much about the Patricia Willard case, and Mike reveals that his father was a lawyer in on the suit. Phil and Gordon carry equipment in after lunch, and Gordon is having an obviously hard time walking. Phil asks if Gordon had a tough weekend, but Gordon says they probably just pulled a muscle or something. Phil says that he tried to call Gordon to celebrate, but Gordon says he was just trying to catch up on some sleep. And apparently Emma still has that ear thing. Phil clearly pressing Gordon of the importance of the contract begins. Listen, Gordon, if we don't make Monday, Gordon says that he knows Griggs likes jobs done fast and that he won't lose the bonus. He then offers that he knows what Phil is getting at and that he knows Jeff is young. But Phil says he's not talking about Jeff. He's worried about Hank. Obviously, this has nothing to do with Hank smushing with Phil's old lady. Oh, no, but, of course. But whatevs. Yeah. Uh, Phil says that he talked to Greg Craig McManus, who is much more experienced, and says that he told Greg about the bonus, and Craig would leave the Yankees in a second and come work for Gordon. Phil also mentions that Craig actually gives a shit about the job. 
Gordon pushes back that Phil's job is to keep things on track and eliminate obstacles. If he thought Hank was a liability, he let Phil sack him, but as it happens, he's not. He's not. (laughs) Phil challenges that he doesn't agree, and Gordon says he doesn't care and directs them back to work. He's like, dude, shut up. Like, no, Mm -hmm. you're not going to fire. You're not going to fire Hank. Fucking get back to work. Um, Flash to Hank, marking the ducks with red paint or red slime at this point. A graffiti tag says Satan rules and Hank shakes his head and sprays over. That's probably what I would have done too. I'd be like, oh Jesus. Right. Next scene, Mike is a whole. The next scene, Mike is hollering something at Jeff who appears to be fooling around or definitely not understanding how to use a tile pulley uppy chair machine thingy. I <laughs> I'm did. pretty sure that's the technical I name. Did. I didn't look it up. <laughs> Mike screaming to Jeff to pull the nose down go straight, what are you, a lobotomy case, etc. The machine suddenly stops and Mike says, nice one, Jeff. Jeff insists that it wasn't him and Mike tells him to go check the breakers. Jeff says that he can't. He has nyctophobia or fear of the dark. It's so cool the way, and I noticed it specifically right here in the movie, the way that they use the building itself to frame shots because they're... um. Mike and Jeff are standing in two different rooms, yep. but they're open doorways. And it's so it's like you see like this cool division of the two of them talking to each other. But with like the it, it's great. A, again, a great use of the space they had to film in. Truly. Mike sighs and goes himself after reminding Jeff to just try not to break anything. Mike makes his way down to the breaker box, which appears to have once housed patient records. He fixes the trip breaker, but instead of leaving, picks up an electric torch and heads to a door that reads staff only. Through the door is a disheveled records room. Cobwebs and boxes litter the space. Everything has sort of a telltale brownish-gray dusty haze of something discarded. Mike hangs up the torch and turns his attention to the desk in front of him. The light fizzles out. And when Mike turns to the light, it flashes back on, illuminating a box marked with a bright orange evidence sticker. Mike pulls down the box and sets it down. As he uses the blade to open the sealed evidence tape, Gordon slices his hand open wherever he is. So I don't know if I would be able to resist that records room myself. Like if I was on a job and found like I know a ton of really old patient records, I'm no, I'm sorry, I know HIPAA and all that, but I'd be like, I need to look at some of this. But if the thing is marked as evidence, which right? leads you to believe that it's, like, part of a case, right? Right. Why is it not with the cops? Why is it just hanging out in a records room at a, at a state hospital? So, as he's cutting the tape open, Gordon slices his hand open, and glass can be heard cracking, like, from inside the box. A girl screaming randomly can be heard, while something falls into Hank's unprotected left eye. All I know is that Mike opened a box and it screamed. Like, <laughs> so. And, and and Gordon cut himself and something fell in Hank's eye. Jeff probably fell down and peed his pants. They don't show him, but like, yeah. that is that is Pandora's box, maybe? Yeah. I don't yes. know. So outside, as the guys get ready to go home, Phil asks Gordon if he's okay. Good first day, guys, he says, as he walks past Hank, who says sarcastically, if they keep it up, they'll all be dead by Monday. Phil smacks him up the back of the head, and I said, thank you. (laughs) 
That dude has not been hit upside the head enough in his no, life. No, he hasn't. Mike watches Gordon drive away as he finishes up. In the next scene, in the records room, Mike loads up the old audio reel. It whirs to life, and a man can be heard telling a woman he calls Mary that he knows this is difficult, and this is why they're here to help. Mary sobs that she misses Peter. The box that held the reel says, Session 1, Mary Hobbs, number 444, Diagnosis, Dissociative Identity Disorder, Alters, The Princess, Billy, and Simon. The physician is labeled Dr. CDB. I don't think you ever get to know who the doctor is. The doctor asks Mary to remember what happened 22 years ago on Christmas night in Lowell. Mary says that this is, that's where they grew up, but begins to get agitated and insists that nothing happened. The doc insists that something did happen that night, and that's why they're having these sessions so Mary can remember and get better. The camera reveals that there are eight other sessions pertaining to this patient, sessions one through nine. The doctor makes a session note that Mary is becoming very agitated and begins to self-pacify with her fingers in her mouth. Mary appears to exhibit an altar known as the princess who asks the doctor if he's seen their doll. Mary got a China doll from her mommy, but we can't find it now. The doctor says that he hasn't and maybe Billy has the doll. Princess laughs and says that Billy is silly. The doc asks Princess if she remembers what happened 22 years ago in Lowell. Princess talks about Christmas Day. Mary got a china doll and Peter got a big old knife. The doc presses her on. Princess says that Mary's mother and father went to sleep and Peter and Mary played hide and seek in the dark. The doctor asks what else happened that night if Simon was there. Mary says she doesn't know any Simon and that she's tired. The doctor asks to talk to Billy, but Mary says Billy is asleep. Over the recording of this session, we see Gordon sitting in the rain, parked on the street in front of his house, which appears to have no lights on inside. Gordon gingerly touches his pants leg and cries out in pain. We still don't know why. The next day, Tuesday apparently, Gordon looks out of the window at a bench near the garden cemetery. So in this scene in the car when Gordon's sitting there in the rain and looking across at the house, it, yeah. there's a shot that kind of focuses in on something that's hanging from his uh, rearview mirror. Right. Um, initially, I was like, I, oh, that, you know, that must be like Wendy's wedding garter or something. And why are they doing that? But. If you look back at the pictures in the christening, you see that that's Emma's headband yeah. that she was wearing. So either way, whether it's Wendy's or whether it's Emma's, it's definitely a, a symbol of family. Yeah. And he's, you know, seri- obviously connected to his family. Yeah. Can... The next day, Tuesday, apparently, Gordon looks out the window at a bench near the garden cemetery. The same creepy voice that we heard before uh, says, you can hear me. But this is interrupted by Phil tapping at the door next in the next room and tapping his watch. In another room of the hospital, Jeff walks in to tell Mike the Jenny's up and running. Mike says to make sure that's, that it stays that way and then reminds Jeff to put your mask on, princess. Jeff scoffs and says, fuck you, buddy, ain't your princess. So this is interesting because then Mike goes, what? Like, he's confused. Like, wait, why did you say that? Why did I say that? Why did I say that? Yeah. Who, where have we heard the term princess before? I know. Hank walks down uh, near the ducks, tagging the dangerous areas, and sees a 1980, sees an 1884 
Morgan's silver dollar sitting in the middle of the floor. He walks a bit further and discovers another silver dollar, this one from 1883. He follows the trail, leading him to a loose brick and a nearby wall. He pries the brick free, and a cascade of coins and paper and assorted other cool stuff spews from the opening with a satisfying sound. I mean, it's it's like... It's a very satisfying sound. It definitely sounds like a casino pan. Jackpot, yeah. Phil calls Hank on the radio, just as Hank is smiling greedily at his good fortune. Phil tells Hank that he wants him with Jeff and Mike after lunch and to bring his gear up. Hank hastily shoves all his treasures back into the opening like a desperate magpie, and we're revealed the other side of the wall houses an oven, like for people, as in dead people stuff. Fucking, this dude's a fucking ghoul. So here's the thing, though. So not being hugely up on the, like, layout and technology of a crematorium, um, I would feel like... I would feel like all of the metal remains and things that Mike or that Hank was finding in the wall wouldn't be specifically in that spot unless somebody had like squirreled them away there. Yeah. So it's really weird. I mean, I, I there's theories around this too, but it's like, no, that you wouldn't just like open a loose brick and suddenly a bunch of stuff falls out unless somebody specifically put that there. Uh, the men break for lunch, and Phil and Hank fight over scratch tickets. Aww. It's a winner's a winner, dude. Nobody cares what scratch or game you play. I know. It's, like, such a stupid... I don't play whatever. I play Jubilee. Dude, shut up. Such a stupid... Shut up, Hoosh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Meanwhile, Mike is still not down. Gordon insists he didn't want his men wandering around by themselves. Mike is already into session five. Mary is crying, distressed, and clearly exhausted by the way she pleads and cries with the doctor on the recording. Before we hear her alter, Billy, doctor asks where Princess lives. Billy says in the tongue because she's always talking. And Billy lives in the eyes because he sees everything. We get no answer when the doctor asks Billy where Simon lives. Jeff looks through some old hospital records about patients being committed due to mortified pride as Mike finally makes it down to lunch. Gordon reminds him that he needs to come down with the rest of the men as Jeff continues to be an idiot and annoy everyone. Did you look up mortified pride? No, what is it actually? I tried to find it. There is no like psychiatric definition for mortified pride. I think that's for us. No, it's, well, it's, so it's mentioned. There are records of people being committed, you know, to mental facilities for mortified pride, but they don't ever say what that means. Well, I mean, it. I think it might be the same as people being, having melancholy. Right, right. but I wanted to know, like, what, what were the criteria for mortified pride? I don't know. From what I could gather, it was like senses of shame and humiliation. So. Interesting. Yeah. That's... Interesting that this would be mentioned. Yep. I don't know. Anyway, um, there's a lot of that. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of, huh, no, you don't say. Noted. Finally, when Jeff asks Mike if he's a lobotomy case and spits soup out of his mouth like drool, so gross. Mike grabs him swiftly in a chokehold while Jeff still laughs. Gordon says, knock it out, knock it off. Mike is like, I'm not doing anything. Mike holds a pointy side of a chopstick millimeters away from Jeff, uh, Jeff's eyelashes and describes what a transorbital lobotomy is to everyone. Wee. 
he knows a lot about lobotomy for being like a law student he knows a lot about lobotomies it's very i mean his dad was a lawyer so yeah i guess he would and i mean morbid curiosity like me that's why i know so much about it it's right but it's just like Dude, this dude knows yeah, a lot about normal people lobot- don't know about transorbital lobotomies. I mean, I do, but not everybody <laughs> else does. It's, it was just weird. <laughs> Back inside, Hank tells Mike he's smarter than their crap job, and he should be using his head, buddy. Mike remembers he needs to part from he needs a part from Gordon's van, and leaves Hank with Jeff to use the Tylee thing. I still don't know the name. <laughs> Tylee driver. The Tylee driver. <laughs> Hank takes a smoke break and then walks to the next room like comes in from lunch and is like i'm gonna go have a smoke you got this fam i'm gonna go have a smoke you just took a break dude's like and um walks into the next room to smoke and dance to like a maxwell or maxwell-esque r&b number playing Mm -hmm. on the radio hank tells jeff some dumb story about a buddy of his that got a porsche as a tip it's like not necessary that you know the story but he taught he does ask him if he knows what a whale is it's just like i know what a whale is it lives in the ocean has like a, has a blowhole and jumps out of the water he's kind of he's jeff is a fuck up but he's very innocent he's really lovable yeah he grows on me he really does yeah jeff asks what the point is because jeff is me and Hank talks about the importance of having an exit plan. He stresses to Jeff not to let asbestos become his life and that it gets inside you, the stress. He breaks off a piece of a tile covered in asbestos. Already an itty-bitty piece of the shit may have gotten inside your lungs. The tissue grows around it like a pearl. By the time you hit 30, boom, you're drowning in your own lung fluid. He says all of this with a smile, though, because he kind of sucks. He says, look at you. You're not even wearing a mask now. And when Jeff challenges that Hank isn't wearing his mask either, Hank says he has an exit plan. And what with all the dead hospital patients loot he found from the crematorium? Like, I think he's just like, I've got an exit plan. My exit plan is a dead person jackpot. Sound gold teeth. Um, Inside Gordon's car, Mike grabs the part he needs and sees sitting in a puddle of the red slime they've been using is a pile of white roses. Which, okay, so these white roses are the same, and they could be white and red, you don't know, because they're covered in this red slime. But the flowers that Gordon brought to Wendy on the day that he went home that we see were white and red red roses. So, a bunch of questions here. Why would they be in the asylum if Gordon did bring them to Wendy? Mm Hmm. Basically, there's no reason for these flowers to be in the asylum, in my opinion. Not in the, not in his van, in the car right then. Yeah, there, they, there is no reason for these to be here except to give you a jarring visual of roses in what appear to be blood. I mean, we know it's the red slime, but they look like they've been, they have blood all over them. Unless it supports my theory, which I'll explain later. Okay, <laughs> we have so many theories, people. <laughs> Um, Hank continues going through each guy's exit plan and then talks about Gordo not being able to have one and that if he didn't land the contract, he'd have to close the business. About Gordon being the Zen master and Jeff should only hope that he has some of Gordon's genes. Gordon shoves asbestos into a black trash bag and Hank continues to talk, saying that he... Lately, he can see some cracks. So he's like, he was the Zen master, but lately he's kind of... Yeah, like, something's off. Something's off with him. Gordon stands in the stairwell and calls Wendy on his phone. 
You can't hear her side of the conversation, but Gordon seems adamant that they need to talk. And though part of the conversation is deafened by the sound of the generator from outside, the call abruptly ends after Gordon urges Wendy to let him finish. So the end of it is like him arguing with her, but you don't really get to hear what he said. You just know that something happened. Something happened that they need and they need to talk about That he wants to talk about. Yeah. Gordon looks out the window and sees Phil exchanging money with a couple of, I mean, I'm going to say thugs, young dudes in baggy pants. Yeah, thug, thuggly dressed people. <laughs> thuggly dressed people. <laughs> this clearly looks like a drug deal. Yeah. This, I mean, that's... Yeah. Someone's th- getting payment for some reason. That's like, what this looks like to me. It looks like a drug deal. Yeah. That night, Hank pulls his car under a heavy brush... And grabs his Walkman and an LED lantern. Okay. And goes inside the facility. Okay. So the gate's already open. Mm. I would think because they have the keys to the gate and they're worried about people getting in that they'd lock up at night. So who opened this gate and why is it open? Well, they're the only ones with the keys. Right. But they're worried about like squatters and things, people getting in. Which obviously, you know, you could just like hop that gate, but like cars. You that know. comes back later too, though, because there's a reason why the gate would be open, right? Later. No, I understand that. I'm just saying. Oh, I noted yeah. here that the gate is open. Oh, sorry. I'm like because there's a reason, though. Just wait. <laughs> they don't know that. Oh, listeners don't know that. Listeners at home, make a note that the gate's open. Oh my god. Okay, moving on. <laughs> We next see the collection of treasures, coins, rings, paper money. Hank holds a couple of partial denture plates and a tooth with a gold crown. Okay, he doesn't care. He's unaffected by the ethical or moral dilemma of any of this. No, man, this is his meal ticket. He reaches further into the back of the furnace and pulls out a clump of hair. Wouldn't that have burned up in a fire? Sorry, but... Yeah, yeah, it's whatever. It's gross. I mean, it's... it sells an image. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he pulls out a clump of hair along with a long pick-like object. So, sorry, real quick. The, um, as soon as Hank finds that pick object, there is a close zoom in on his eyes for like a, a while. Like there's... Of course there is. I can't imagine that would be anything that we need to That's worry not about. Impor- that's not important at all. No. Happy with the collection... Hank walks back down the long corridor and spots an empty GIF jar on the floor, which he picks up. There's a loud, fluttering clatter, and Hank turns around to face the direction of the noise, startled, and drops the peanut butter jar. He points his flashlight down the hall and sees nothing. He hears the clatter again and is visibly shaken, and when he sees a shadowy figure come into view down at the end of the long hall, he takes off running. He stops Uh, As he's seemingly cornered and points his light up just in time to see two pigeons fluttering around. So just some dickhead pigeons. (laughs) Stupid dickhead pigeons. He regains his composure a bit and continues to make his way towards the exit. Just before he's out, a flashlight shines at the screen and Hank cries out and then quickly falls silent. Something happens there. Yeah, it cuts off. The shot cuts abruptly. Like, it's like, uh, and then just nothing. Nothing. Wednesday. Gordon and Phil silently work removing tiles, not without a few suspicious glances at each other. Don't say anything. They're just like looking at each other weird. 
Jeff pulls up tiles in an old dining room while Mike rides the scooper upper. The Tiley driver. The Tiley driver. The shot cuts to the hole Hank had created to find his treasure, but no Hank. So you just see the empty hole. And no treasure. I looked on the floor, and it doesn't look like the treasure was there either. Nothing there. There's no more coins. We can presume that everything was in Hank's bag, you know, loaded up. Yeah. The next scene, Phil shakes his head and swigs and spits from a bottle of water. Jeff asks what the verdict is on, and Gordon indicates that he's getting nothing and that Hank hasn't even left his answering machine on. Jeff asks if Gordon tried Amy's. Gordon asks if Jeff knows her number, and then he offers to call information. Phil then gets all mad and, like, asks for the phone, citing that he knows her number and he'll call her. He's all pissy. After speaking to an apparently pretty upset Amy, Phil relays what she said. Apparently, Hank went over to her house last night. He said he found his meal ticket, packed a bag, and then bolted to Miami to casino school. What is casino school? Like, you learn how to run a casino, you learn how to play. I'm guessing you learn how to play all the games. I Or run, maybe run a casino. That's what I said, like, learn yeah. how to be a D. De- but I don't know. I didn't even care enough. I'm like, whatever, hoosh, I don't care. It was it was mentioned school. on, there's like an IMDB trivia thing where somebody was like, okay, I like legit do not understand the subplot of the casino school. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, okay, good. I'm not the only one. Like what do the fuck? Casino school. Casino like, school. What the fuck is I guess clown school? school was too overused. They just like <laughs> casino school. Phil spends a few moments playing I told you so. And he's like, I told that bitch and I told you guys and I told everyone. Um, and then tells Mike to call Craig McManus and see if he's still available. Gordon doesn't seem convinced that Hank just up and left. He says to Phil, something isn't right. Phil asks Gordon what's the matter, and Gordon confronts him on the two guys he was talking to the other day. They get pretty up in each other's faces, like very close to kissing, width apart. Yeah. And they get very close to each other. Phil asks Gordon if he's questioning his performance. Gordon says, should I be? And gets heated when Phil turns away and tells Mike to call McManus again. Gordon, like, wrenches him back by his shoulders and says, don't you walk away from me. Don't ever walk away from me. These You see cracks forming here in Gordon's psyche. Big yeah. time. Yeah, he's not, he's like shaking. and He's not holding it together. He's not a well man. Phil is unflinching, though, like cold. And asks if Gordon plans on hitting him. Gordon sits on the steps, regaining his composure, and looks down at his hands, noticing coagulated blood under his fingernails. Well, it could be that red slime stuff. I I know. I know. It's blood. Outside, Mike asks if he thinks Phil's doing a bad job. Not anxious to get in the middle, Mike says, nah, he's doing fine, and eats chips and reads a hospital registry. (laughs) He's just like, nah. I'm good. Nope. Phil gets all bitter, talking about how this used to be such a great deal. Steady gigs, beers every night, until Gordon's daughter Emma was born. Phil says Emma's the reason Gordon lost the last two gigs. That's why he was tired and he overbid. Mike insists Gordon loves being a father, but Phil says that Gordon loves being a father now, but that was never him. That was like Wendy forced him into it. Mm -hmm. So Phil is a bitter, bitter dude. Phil's got baggage. I mean, they all got some baggage, but yeah, Phil's... Phil's You're getting a little bit of a, like, 
things were better before. Like and wow. al- almost to the extent where you're waiting to for him to be like, I could run this place better. Like right. you know, it's it's almost to that extent. Yeah. He escalates back to complaining that Hank should have fired him six months ago, and Mike leaves to go take his piss because he's like, you know what? I'm I don't I'm blame you here for this. I don't blame you, bro. Run away. The place is making everyone all aggressive. Like he's he just needs to chill. We next see Gordon making his way down the pathway to the cemetery, limping heavily. He seems to be in an exhausted trance of some kind as he sits on a fallen tree looking out into the woods. The full view of the cemetery marker is sprawled out behind him. Mike is back in records. He finds Mary Hobbs and discovers that she's deceased. Again, the number next to her name, 444. Back outside, Gordon sits on the tree trunk and holds his cell phone to his ear. He sounds fragile and small as he asks Wendy if she can, if they can talk and that he needs to ask her something and can she forgive him? As he awaits a response, the camera pans down to reveal a broken and downed grave marker, number 444. It's very interesting that he's so, he seems so drawn to that cemetery because it's, we see him look over in that direction a few times up till now in the movie and that when he sits on this tree, it just happens to be by Mary Hobbs' broken headstone. Yeah. I also think it's interesting that Greg's several times said he should go check it out. Yeah, I know. That's very weird. Jeff runs up to Uncle Gordon. He thanks him for giving him the opportunity to work for him. Gordon looks to be just on the verge of tears. He's sweating, shaky, evidently in a great deal of pain. Jeff offers that he'll bust his ass for Gordon and urges him not to stress out because I got your back. It's really sweet. Oh, my gosh. And Gordon and Jeff, like, lock hands and Gordon's like, yeah, family. (laughs) Peter Mullen's performance here. Oh, my God. It's so. You want to talk about watching a man go through an internal struggle and just being on the brink. It is insanely nuanced. Oh, it is so so powerful. It's such an amazing, amazing performance. Perfectly, perfectly cast for this role. Yeah, because he is just breaking. Mm -hmm. He's not broken yet, but you are watching him break right here when he's talking to Jeff. Jeff asks about Wendy and barely holding it together. I mean, weepy. He says she's good. She's tired. Kids tire you out sometimes. Peter Mullen is an insanely convincing actor, and I feel his despair. That's what I said here. Yeah, because yeah. I just was like, oh, my God. We next hear another session with Mary Hobbs. The doctor asks why she's crying, and Mary says she misses her family. Mike rifles through the file, and we see the words repressed her memory of the tragedy. As we hear the doctor ask Mary how she got those scars on her chest, Mary insists she already told the doctor before she fell off her bike when she was a girl. Inside the file are also childlike drawings of Christmas, uh, several magazine and news clippings of various types of China dolls. The doctor asks Mary if she knows about Princess or Billy, and she insists that she doesn't. The final picture we see in the file is of Mary's chest from an examination photo depicting her scars. They're like cut little cuts, like cuts all like over between her. her breasts. Yeah. The doctor asks about Simon and Mary's tone, tone changes from exhausted and weeping to angry and defiant. She doesn't know Simon and wants to just go back to her room. Mike walks back out into the hall as Billy says hello to the doctor. The doctor asks Billy why he won't tell him about what happened in Lowell. 
because he knows Billy saw it because Billy's the eyes. The camera pans down to a photograph of Mary Hobbs, most likely an intake photo. Billy says the doctor knows perfectly well what happened, and the doctor says that they have to let Mary remember so she can get better. But Billy becomes agitated and says that he has to protect her. The doctor asks to speak with Simon, but Billy insists that Simon is asleep and that he won't scare Mary. During this scene, you know, where we're hearing the session between Mary and the doctor, um, at one point it pans past a family photo of Mary and Peter and her parents. She's holding a doll in this picture. So either this is a different doll than her China doll or this is a big plot hole. I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt on that one and say it's probably not a plot hole. The next scene, Phil and Gordon are in the clean room getting ready at the end of the day. Phil tells Gordon to take a shower that he shouldn't go home with that shit on him. Gordon pensively cleans his equipment and asks Phil what is the stupidest thing he's ever done. Um, He says that he wouldn't have introduced Hank to Amy. (laughs) I wish I had that one back, he says. Gordon tells Phil that he hit Wendy and that there was a pot of boiling water on the stove for pasta when he came home Friday night. He said he had the flowers and the champagne, and he wanted to celebrate getting the new job. He said he went in to kiss her. She turned, and before he knew it, there was a pot of boiling water on his leg. He said he doesn't know if it was the dog barking or Emma crying, but he slapped Wendy. He said it was, the, it was just a mistake, and he slapped her for it. Gordon says Wendy won't talk to him and then implores Phil not to tell the other guys. Phil doesn't say no here, by the way. He doesn't say, no, I'm not going to tell the other guys. He goes, man, come on. He never actually says no. Yeah. As a sort of peace offering, Gordon admits that Phil was right about Craig and he'll give him a call. Phil says that the guys Gordon saw him talking to were those graffiti artists and that he had a talk with them so they won't be coming around anymore. So that was a lie. Sure, Jan. (laughs) (laughs) That is not who those guys were. That night, Gordon sleeps on his steering wheel in front of the hospital. So not his house and not a motel because he says in that scene later on. No. Oh, yeah. He says in that scene, he said, I got a hotel. Phil asked where he was staying, and he said the hotel, but yeah. then we see him in his van asleep on his steering wheel. Asleep on a steering wheel. Um, the voice again says, hello, Gordon, and we see flashes of Wendy holding Emma and smiling to the camera. You know who I am, the voice says, as Gordon looks out of his car window and then brings the work bag inside containing the flowers and champagne. Roses? They're lovely. What's the occasion, Gordon? We get more of the story this time as we hear Wendy say, not here, Gordon, later, laughing as he's, like, trying to... Like, play a little grab ass. Yeah. (laughs) And watch out as we hear a pot of water splashes to the ground. Emma cries, a dog barks, and Gordon cries out in pain. The back of Gordon in his asbestos gear comes closer into view, and a voice says, do it, Gordon. The sound of the slap and a scream, and Gordon is suddenly facing the camera and bathed in either red slime or blood. Blood, yeah. Gordon wakes from this from a steering wheel nightmare and looks around disoriented. So is it worse or better if you're hearing voices in your dream? Because obviously he was dreaming this, but you hear the same voice that he'd been hearing through the movie, and I'm like, ooh, that's creepy. And then I'm like, no, it's creepier to hear him when you're not asleep. Right. I don't know. It's all bad. Yeah, it's not good. The next scene is gnarly. 
Gordon attempts to clean third degree burns on his leg. Ooh, a mask. So pain- I'm sorry. It looks so painful. The makeup here is great because this shit looks horrifying. It looks real. Blisters and raw flesh. He pours some kind of first aid liquid on the wound and no doubt to keep it from getting infected and cries out in immense pain. Rough stuff. It's hard to watch. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, I believe I believe he's in pain. Like Mm -hmm. his mouth is just like kind of kind of like frozen in this open drooling. Yeah, he's drooling on himself. The pain is so bad. He can't. It's it's very it's it feels real. The camera pans through the dark corridors of the hospital but sounds of heavy footsteps and labor breathing can be heard. And just before the scene fades away, we see a person's shadow to the left of the screen. Hmm. So somebody's inside. Mm-hmm. Thursday. Phil smokes a joint in his car. He quickly stows it when he notices Gordon driving up. Because Gordon, if you remember, that's one of the rules. No, no drugs. drugs. No drugs, dude. But I think this probably brings back to why phil was talking to those two dudes i'm just saying maybe gordon looks like the shell of a man he stares through phil as he observes that he's there early phil asks gordon if he's okay gordon doesn't really say anything in his state so phil offers that he's going to go inside and that craig will be coming in like the next day on friday Mm -hmm. the uh, in another scene Phil stands on the roof of the facility, finishing his joint, and says, it's going to get ugly. (laughs) He's getting high on a roof and watching geese. Like, what a life. (laughs) Uh, Down in the dining hall, Jeff continues to use the tile mower. (laughs) Girl, I have no idea what to call this fucking thing. What do we call it? The Tiley Driver. The Tiley Driver. The breaker trips again, which, of course, Mike blames on Jeff. But before he can go down to check the breakers, Phil comes in all hopped up on weed. On hopped up, hopped on, up on weed? On hopped up on weed confidence and asks to talk to him in the hall. I got to talk to you. Mike says that he has to check the breakers, but Phil says let the kid do it. Phil explains to Mike they have a problem. Phil goes on to say that this isn't easy for him, but Gordon needs to take some time off because he's become a liability. Mike scoffs. Seems to recognize that Phil's eyes are a bit bloodshot, perhaps, and says that he can see why Phil might be a little paranoid. Like, Mike's <laughs> hip to it. He's like, no, okay. I guess your paranoia is coming from somewhere else there, buddy. Right. Phil informs Mike that Gordon hit his wife. Phil says Craig is coming in tomorrow, and if Griggs hears about this, they're going to lose the gig, lose the bonus. So he's talking really fast. Gordon looks up the stairwell to the sound of the men talking in the hallway. And I do believe hearing everything. He hears everything here. Oops. Because he's he's got this look on his face like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, Phil swore he wouldn't tell anybody else. And the second he has the opportunity, he's like, did you know Gordon hit his wife? Yeah. <laughs> Jeff runs down the steps to do the breakers. Gordon approaches Mike and Phil, still talking about Gordon. And Phil telling Mike to follow his lead. This leads to the most awkward, I caught you talking about me, but no one's going to acknowledge it in, a, in movie history. Yes. yes. This is hor- This is the horror movie right here. Awkward non-confrontations where everybody <laughs> pretends you didn't hear a thing or they weren't just totally talking about right. you. Yeah. And everybody knows that you probably heard, but... Uh. Yeah. They pretend they were talking about Jeff and how he's coming along. And how is he coming along? Gordon asked coldly. Jeff walks into the dark room where the breaker box is, walks up, flips the thing, and speed walks away. He's not fucking around. I am not trying to get caught in this dark. (laughs) 
Um, okay, the kid grew on me. <laughs> yeah. On his way back up the stairs, Jeff sees, uh, holy shit, Hank, what are you doing here? <laughs> Jeff. No, you didn't say it right. It's, what are you doing here? <laughs> Jeff says that everyone thought he took off to Miami to that casino school and asked if he scored on a scratcher or something. What are you doing here? Hank repeats, sliding his bloody index finger down the window where he's staring. Well, as far as we know, he's wearing sunglasses. So we don't really know where he's looking. Yeah. We just know he's standing there by a window on the stairs with sunglasses on out of nowhere. And out of the bloody finger and out of it. And oh, yeah. The only thing he can say is, what are you doing here? Like, yeah, over and over and over. That is the only thing he can say. Yeah, it is. Keep that in mind. I have to have that in mind, and I have notes. (laughs) That's noted. Jeff, who understandably is weirded out by the display, says he forgot something and he'll be right back. Then he books it, leaving weirdo, what are you doing here, Hank, standing all creepy, (laughs) staring out the window in the stairwell. Give me a break. He did not forget anything. He's like, I hate, I'm allergic to awkward conversations. I have to nope out of this, please. (laughs) Gordon, Mike, and Phil are still having their really weird, awkward moment. When Gordon finally asks what time it is and suggests lunch, I'm like, thank God. It could be 9.30. I'd be like, it's about noon. It's time to, like, I don't know, leave this room. They discuss who should place the order, and Phil said, fuck it, they'll flip for it. He flips a Morgan Silver Dollar and asks Mike to call it. At the same moment from the stairwell, a silver dollar slips from Hank's hand and falls to the floor. Mike calls heads. The silver dollar Hank was holding lands on heads. Uh, Phil examines the coin and without showing Mike says it's tails get going loser. Gordon walks up to Phil and grabs the coin from his hand, studying it perplexed and says, where did you get this? Phil says what and stares him down. But before their little staring match gets any weirder, Jeff comes running into the report that he found Hank on the stairwell and he was standing there and maybe bleeding. (laughs) So this part with the coin is weird. This part where Gordon confronts, not confronts, but approaches Phil in like this, where did you get that thing with the coin? It's... It only made sense to me later. No, it does. Right. It makes no sense right now. You're None like, of why this is makes he pissed off over this coin? Right. But there, oh, there's so much. This is one of those movies. Watch it once. Watch and- it once. Figure it out rewatch it and everything becomes so much or, clearer or watch it once and then like i don't know listen to our podcast <laughs> and then watch it again shameless self-promotion i think i'm allowed to shamelessly plug my own podcast on, on your podcast. podcast i think you're i think that's the only pl- no i'm kidding but no seriously this is one like i said i had only seen it once before mm-hmm. i rewatched it just blind not taking notes anything and then immediately rewatched it again to do notes and went oh yep. shit you got oh it. shit you got it so this is definitely an oh shit watch this twice movie yeah phil angrily insists that um oh okay yeah phil angrily insists that that is not possible that there's no way that jeff found hank in the stairwell and asks jeff how hank can be here if he's in miami jeff says phil can ask him himself he's like dude i'm i saw what i saw 
The four men walk up the stairwell as Phil continues to bitch about Hank being in Miami. He's not letting up. He's like, no, he can't be here. No, he's in Miami. This dude really needs Indica because his strain is making him way edgy. <laughs> I'm just saying. He's on that skunk stuff. I yeah. Think. He needs to stop doing hybrids or stop doing sativa and needs to get down on a little Indica blend. When they reach the window where Jeff saw Hank, he isn't there. But as Phil yells at Jeff that he talked to Amy and Amy said he was in Miami and they all heard it. Gordon notices that the silver dollar is still there. Like yeah. he sees the silver dollar. Gordon contests that they were all there and they all heard it. He said, no, we heard you. We didn't hear it. We heard you on the phone, but we never heard Amy. Interesting. Gordon pointing out something to Phil that we've already observed several times with him. We've heard Gordon on the phone, but we've never heard Wendy. Mm -hmm. Gordon insists on seeing the cell phone so he can speak with Amy himself. But Mike freezes as both Phil and Mike shout contradictorily, like orders at him, contradictory orders at him. I did actually write it right. I just said it wrong. <laughs> My, Mike freezes as both Phil and Gordon shout contradictory orders at him. Phil points out that Gordon has lost it. Gordon finally shouts at Mike to give him the fucking cell phone. Give me the fucking cell phone! Yeah. Like, it's so beautifully Scottish. Suddenly, thudding can be heard from the floor above. Gordon tells Mike and Jeff to make sure that Hank doesn't go downstairs and tells Phil to go with him, to which Caruso brilliantly delivers, Hey, fuck you. <laughs> it's the weirdest delivery of a line, but it's, <laughs> it's amazing. Caruso. It's, it's, like it's very Caruso. Yeah. Hey. Fuck you. Like, hisses it at him. Yeah. The men split off, Phil leading Jeff through the tunnels and Gordon taking Mike down the corridors to God knows where. Gordon is limping really bad and falls once as he tries to drag Mike to a seemingly pretty specific location. Mike tells Gordon that he thinks he heard something in the tunnels. And before Gordon can yell that they're going to stick together, Mike says, fuck this shit, I'm out. And he heads yeah, down to records and start and start session nine. He's like, nah, I'm good. You, I'm would, think, you would think that uh, Mike would be the high one because he's like, nah, man, I just want to go chill and listen to some psychiatric <laughs> reels. Like, I'm not trying to have all this drama. Right. I'm just going to go. I don't know, listen to somebody with DID. Right. By the way, earlier, I forgot to mention. So when we first see Mary Hobbs's records, it says DID on her file. Right. That was not in use until 1984. I these know. Were, these are recorded in the 70s. Oh, that made me so mad. I was like, oh, no, it's because they also later call it multiple personality disorder, which that was what it was right. referred to yes. when these were recorded. I nitpicker, but there you go. Yeah. Uh, Phil leads down the tunnels away hearing distant sounds of music that sounds like it could be coming from a Walkman. He tells Jeff to give him his torch and goes to investigate the sound, leaving Jeff behind. As Gordon walks around Ward B looking for Hank, the doctor speaks to Billy, asking him if he knows that him, Princess, and Simon are all inside of Mary. The doctor says if Mary is sick, all of the altars are sick too. The doctor tells Billy that he must tell him what happened in Lowell. Billy says that they were playing hide-and-seek. Mary was hugging her doll and looking for Peter, and it was real dark. Phil continues through the tunnels, looking for the source of the sound. Jeff starts yelling out to Phil because he's obviously pretty pants-pissing terrified at this point. <laughs> and poor baby, I will be too. 
Yeah. I'm like, I am alone and it is dark and I don't want to, I don't want to stay here. Billy cries out that he won't tell. Mary's a good girl and she doesn't need to know what Simon did. The doctor asks to who, Billy? Billy cries to Peter. The doctor pleads for Billy to say what Simon did to Peter. And Mike frantically jots notes on a pad of paper, taking on the full role of observer here. He seems to be investigating, trying to determine something. And though it may be as, sim as simple as him trying to plan to use the Mary Hobbs case for a future thesis or something for law school, I personally think he's also playing the role of co-creator here, urging us to pay attention to little details. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, since he did co-write this. Yeah. Mike listens to the doctor continuing to a sobbing Billy slash Mary that he has to speak to Simon. Mike begins to fast forward the tape because holy shit, this is long and we got to get to the end of this thing. It might not be intended as meta, but writing this out right now and speaking this out right now. <laughs> like, oh my God, we got to get to the end of this thing. <laughs> it feels meta. It's like we're here and he's like, Jesus Christ, just fast forward to the end. What happens? Outside, the generator starts to run out of gas and down in the tunnels, Jeff shouts fuck as the lights start to dim. Phil's flashlight lights the way and we see the first person view walking through the tunnels towards the direction of jazzy music. The camera reveals a discarded Walkman on the ground. Okay, I'm sorry, but this is two days later, maybe, after Hank goes missing? Three? The, the Those batteries, batteries are dead. I'm like, this shit would... Ah, it made me so mad. Okay, yeah. sorry. Meanwhile, Gordon is walking through one of the main wards when that same voice calls out Gordon... And he runs in the direction of the voice. Uh, Jeff makes his way back to the snaking tunnels down the corridor that house all of the bio suit suits the guys wear. The most off-putting scene ever. Talk about weird liminal energy. Mm -hmm. All of the suits have gloves attached to them and it seems like people are in them. And we kind of wait for one of those suits to move. But honestly, this is not that kind of movie, and I'm actually grateful for that. No, me too. No. Me too. Um, but you're still weirded out by it. Also, this is the cutest thing. So behind that wall where all the glove suits were hanging, after the shoot was done, all of the cast and crew members signed the wall, and Brad, Brad Anderson wrote, we did asbestos we could. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, that How makes precious. me love this movie more. <laughs> How is that? I love a good pun. <laughs> Phil continues through the dark tunnel and spots one of Hank's boots and a shirt. Hank can be heard saying weakly, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? It's so creepy. Mm -hmm. it's, it's really off-putting. Jeff walks down the hall closer to one of the upper floors, but still in the tunnels. He picks up pace. Mike listens to Mary slash Billy crying that he made her do it, and he fast-forwards the tape again. Gordon follows the sound of the voice laughing. Phil apprehensively points his flashlight down to the tunnel, and he hears Hank. What are you doing here? The generator is empty. The lights flash. Jeff looks up in horror. Mike listens desperately to the doctor, begging Simon to wake up, as Billy pleads for him to stop. The generator dies, just as the doctor is shouting, wake up, Simon, and it is the last thing the recorder plays before it stops. Jeff looks up to see a group of the lights drop out in the tunnels and silent screams and then turns to outrun the darkness, which I think be, might be the most metal thing I've ever said. He <laughs> frantically runs screaming bloody fucking terror the entire way. It sounds goofy, but it actually didn't affect me that it didn't make me laugh. It 
I thought it was this. It was seriously terrifying, though. He's literally being chased through the halls by his biggest phobia. Yeah, it's intense because those lights, that string of lights, is slowly fading off, turning off one by one. Yeah, towards him the as darkness he's running is away yeah. from it. He's it being is, chased by darkness. The visual is really stunning. Yeah. Gordon makes it to Ward A, the one Greg says was reserved for the most dangerous patients and the one that was the furthest away from the center of the facility. Phil approaches with ragged breaths as Hank sobs delicately and says, what are you doing here? Mike walks through the center of the main building. Phil rounds the corner to see Hank squatting on the floor in his underwear, rocking back and forth and sobbing. What are you doing here? He's still wearing his sunglasses. It is such a creepy, jarring, sad, (laughs) like, oh man, you're like, what the fuck happened? Here's the thing, like you, in in any normal, like any normal movie, there's always kind of the asshole that you're hoping gets it first. And Hank is a dick. So you're like, man, whatever. I hope he gets it. I didn't hope this for him. I know. You're like, I just kind of hope he got dead, but I didn't want him to be. Or he did take off to casino school like a dick. Like, I didn't want this for anyone. Right. Nobody wants. I mean, he's he's a shell of a person. Like, he's not a man. And he's just a he's just a he's an infant. He's like a shadow of a patient who used to be at Danvers. It's oh, my God. Yeah, it's like a death echo. Yeah. Gordon suddenly comes in on Phil's walkie to say, Phil, I think I found Hank. Well, that's not, that's not fucking true. Because Hank's right there. I know. So, so. I don't know why. I don't. So what up, Gordon? He, I wonder if he, I always wondered if he was saying that just because of the voice he was hearing. And so he was like, I think I found Hank. Like I'm heading towards his voice. I don't know. But I, yeah, I, I don't well, I mean, I, I do have a tendency to be pretty skeptical of anybody's intentions ever in any of these moves so i don't trust anybody at this point i feel like though we're seeing the cracks in gordon's foundation so to speak Mm -hmm. he hasn't necessarily given me a concrete reason not to trust him so my my thought right here is that he says i found hank not that he actually saw hank but that he's like i heard like I heard a voice. I'm going towards the voice. Yeah. It it has to be Hank because who else could it be? Although that voice sounds nothing like Hank, but whatever. Um, so I, that is that is the only thing I can read into that without being like uh, he was trying to lure him into a trap. I don't know. Yeah. Mike impatiently refills the generator. Gordon heads up the stairwell toward A. Jeff gasps and panic breathes in particles of dust and likely asbestos to get a literal leaf from a small spot of light streaming in from one of the broken ducts. Gordon finally makes it to Ward A and looks down the hall at one lone wheelchair we remember from the opening scene. Phil says, Gordon, come back on Gordon's walkie. He asks where he is, and Gordon tells him he's in Ward A on the third floor. Phil answers that he's coming, and Gordon Gordon's mouth slightly twitches here. Okay. It's just like this little like smirk. Really? I didn't notice it. Mike gets the generator running again. From inside the empty records room, the recorder comes back on, and we hear the same voice that's been talking to Gordon this whole time says, Hello, Doc. Uh-uh. Yep. The doctor says, Simon. And Simon says, You know who I am. Jeff looks at the white dust 
covering him head to toe as the light comes back on. So like he looks down is like, oh shit, I'm covered in what did what did Hank call it? Like air spooge or something like spooge dust dust got all over him (laughs) oh no gordon rips past the caution police tape and heads down the corridor of ward a so towards that wheelchair that we saw in the in the very beginning where Griggs is like i wouldn't walk over there because it's water damaged Mm -hmm. so it had been closed off this whole time except for right now doctor says billy has told me a lot about about you billy is a smart boy simon says what happened Christmas night in Lowell, the recording continues. Simon says that the doctor shouldn't use his imagination. Gordon walks down the corridor as the doctor tells Simon he'd rather hear the story from him. He stops at something catching the light on the ground and notices it's a coin, the same type of coin Phil flips the day before to determine who was picking up lunch. Simon says Peter was naughty and he shouldn't have done it. The doctor asks what Peter did, and Simon says, Peter scared Mary, that he crept up behind her in the dark. Psychiatric digression real quick from everything I've read. Disassociation is brought on by trauma, usually from some form of abuse. Mm-hmm. And I, like my little headcanon, is that Peter terrorized the fuck out of that Mary. Yeah, like, he's seems- there's something about that picture. If you look at Peter, Peter looks like kind of a kind of a oh like the family photo yes kind of a shitty kid well even you the thing is i mean the full story comes out here in a second but like that one incident in that one incident isn't likely to cause what happens if it's just this incident no i don't think so the extent we don't if there is trauma like trauma that would cause did then we do not get the full extent of it in this movie. No, we don't. Yeah, we get this one little story. But anyway. Yeah, okay. Anyway, so I know, like I said, it's digression. But being that I love everything abnormal psych. Yeah, no, I understand. No, I'm with you. I got it. So Peter scared Mary. Mary fell down and broke the porcelain doll, cutting her chest. She needed someone to help her, says Simon. So I introduced myself. Gordon approaches the open seclusion at the end of the hall, and we look in. His expression goes ghostly with recognition as he looks inside. And as he walks through the door towards whatever is fascin- whatever fascinating vision is pulling him in, that the movie won't show us. <laughs> it will. It does. It, will. it doesn't hear. I know. I know. We see that the nameplate right on the door says Mary Hobbs, and it says number 444. So this is her seclusion. So, so the chair at, from the beginning of the movie, the thing that initially causes Gordon to stop and get fixated, that's just outside Mary's room. The voice he's hearing that we now know is Simon's. Is Mary's voice. Is one of Mary's alters or Mary's voice. Yeah. Why? what i know and there are so many theories about why but i have this th- is where I have it kind of all come oh yeah no we yeah i'm sure yeah. we both do but this is where it all comes together i know so i know this is where it came from okay so this um i'm gonna read through this because in my head when i was watching the movie this stream of consciousness came out but it says and i quote oh shit i do have two theories now 
There's the Phil Puppet Master theory and the Gordon Demon theory. And I don't know if these are the two main theories that you have out there. But yeah, okay, this movie can handle some deep dives. And I had to stop myself from diving into background because of an agreed upon division of labor. I spiraled down rabbit holes. Anyway. (laughs) But I was like, I need to say all of this. As I was watching the end of the movie, I was like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. Well, one so, of the theories you just said is not one I have written down. So there's a, there's one that you may have come with, up with on your own that I have not seen yet. So oh. so I won't talk. I won't go into which one until we're all done. Okay. 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 You can do it. Come on. So, <laughs> a bunch of other shit happens and the end. No. <laughs> so why did you do it, Simon? Because Mary let me, Doc. They always do. Okay. Bill has been making his way towards Gordon this entire time. He seems on an angry mission, which is, we've seen quite a few glimpses uh, this entire time. Like, he seems to have serious anger issues. Yeah. And, like, trouble controlling outbursts. Yeah. The camera pans down to his hand, and we see that he's carrying a large curved knife. Simon tells the doctor he told Mary to take Peter's knife and cut him. Do it, Mary, the voice echoes. The way that Simon told Gordon to do it when he slapped Wendy. Simon told Mary to carve him up real good with the knife. And because Peter had just gotten that knife for Christmas, it was brand new and real sharp too. Gordon looks at the wall of Mary's room plastered with photographs from his life. Wendy and Emma's christening pictures. Simon continues the story to the doctor telling him that he told Mary to kill her parents too so they wouldn't get mad. Gordon flashes to a memory of Phil reminding him to take the camera back. Apparently, Phil needed to borrow it for some reason. Weird. Not sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's the... Yes. I remember that flashback. I don't either. Like, okay, it happened, but it was such a throwaway moment. He was coming out of the car. He said, hey, don't forget this. And it's like... It's a wallet. Whose wallet? That's Gordon's wallet. Are you talking about the yellow thing he's holding? Yes. That's a wallet. He had taken it to go pay for lunch or whatever. And he's like, don't forget your wallet. So when he sees that picture on the wall that that was in his wallet, he assumes that Phil stole it. It doesn't change my theory at all about Phil, though. No, that's Um, fair. I'm just, I, because I, I, that's, I was like, like, either... Either it's a camera that he used to take and develop film, or no, it's his wallet, wallet, which he got the pictures from. Yeah. Okay. Either way. I could see how he would get the one picture of Emma, because we see Gordon show that picture to Griggs. Right. When he's like, oh, let me see your baby, whatever. Um, Why are there so many? Well, well, right. He wouldn't have kept all the christening photos in his wallet, too. So, whatever. Just no. saying. No, but he did have the christening photos in his car. Right. In the van. Yeah. That's what I mean. <laughs> There's, I know. I know. Jeff runs from the building screaming as white dust clouds plume from him. He rips his gear off and makes it to Gordon's van to radio one of the guys. Mike walks through the main floor theater and checks his flashlight as he heads back to the records room. Jeff holds his side and radios for Gordon to come back, please. He's dripping with sweat and appears to be in full panic sad face i know he needs his uncle and i hate this well he needs he needs somebody because yeah. he was just exposed to his biggest yeah, fear like he's having a panic attack and he radios in and he asks for gordon to come back he says gordon come back and that breaks my heart he catches his breath reaches down in the van driver's uh, side door compartment and eats an oreo to calm down which i 
Sure. If I'm having a it's panic attack like that, I'm I'm not eating Oreos, man. I'm dry heaving on the side of the road. <laughs> but, it, but it helps him, so sure. And looks up to see someone and says, sorry, man, I was freaking out. The lights went out and I got these in the van. Is that okay? He holds up the Oreo. It looks like he goes in for a hug. Freeze frame and it zoom cuts on his face and torso fade to black. I hate this. What does he like shrieking noise? It goes like, like it's and then it stops and then you see nothing. You don't know what happens. Thanks. I hate it. (laughs) Um, We next see the B-roll of the hospital. Static shots. Daytime. Just a building. A decaying building. Minding its own business. The unmanned tape recorder still plays. But session nine has long since ended. And the end of the film is like flap, flap, flapping away. All like, I'm done, stupid. Come, Somebody better come. Yeah, it's like blip, 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 blip. Mikey didn't make it. Well, Mikey's just not there. He's not there. Uh, The camera zeroes in on a photograph of Mary Hobbs giving a defiant side-eye glance to the camera. The look is knowing. Right. And it makes me feel like we're supposed to think the word premeditated. Or that that's Simon. That's just a picture of Simon. Or that's a picture of Simon, which still it would be premeditated. Like, we're supposed to, we're supposed to glean something from that knowing look of mary looking at us or she could just be pissed off that she's having her picture taken yet again because we know they did just take a picture of her chest for you know so who knows but that's not a bad a bad theory the text flashes friday birds sing in the morning gordon's work van sits alone in the empty hospital parking lot gordon sits in his van exhausted and a man says come back gordon come back phil says we found the one the one responsible so Gordon makes his way through the kitchen of the hospital. His breathing is ragged and he limps. A broken, fragile man with a mask of an expression, uh, like a man in the gallows. Craig McManus, played by the Larry Fessenden of Until Dawn. Dude, I love Larry Fessenden. Not enough time. He needs his whole. He needs his own episode. So this is the thing, Larry Fessenden. I was telling you before, like he's done a bunch of indie horror. He showed up as an actor in a few things, but I think he's also maybe written and directed. Um, he's a weird guy, but he like if you want a fun, weird movie, check stuff that he's affiliated with because like it's great. He did one called well, he was he was he acted in a movie called Your Next, which was pretty fun. That was like a home invasion movie. But then he was in another one called We're Still Here. He kind of just pops up in horror here and there. And anytime I see him, I'm like, this is a fun time. Until Dawn, great game. Oh, my God. Loved it. it. So good. Yeah. A cigarette hangs from his mouth as he steps up to the building with a grin. A whale. McManus looks stoked as he heads inside. He uh, walks through the building, calling for the men, but no one answers. And as he makes his way through the halls, the camera pans up to reveal that they're that in a separate part of the building, the main theater, there's a large puddle of blood and drag marks. No mic, no mic though. No, but um, a man-sized amount of blood. Yeah. Gordon makes his way to the clean rooms to the sealed-off plastic. Hank lies naked on the floor, wrapped in plastic. He's not moving, and he's still wearing his sunglasses. Phil says, I mean, he was a liability. Gordon in shock asks Phil who did this. Phil says that Henry brought it on himself. Gordon accuses Phil meekly. He says, you did this. Phil says, Gordon, I need you to wake up. 
and take a really, really good look at him. Gordon lifts the sunglasses to reveal the spiky thing Hank found in the crematorium oven shoved right in the corner of his right eye. He opens his eye and looks at Gordon, who doesn't really recoil, but gently cradles his head and whispers softly to him as if as if he's trying to help him, tell him to hang in there and they're going to get him help. Bruh. Yeah, because at this point, Phil did this, man. Yeah. I mean, that's exact. I mean, that the whole time Gordon is like, Phil is up to something. And we find Hank and Phil's like, he did it to himself. He was a liability. I've been telling you. And Hank is laid out on the floor with that thing in his eye. And so what else would you think? He'd be like, Phil, what the Bruh. hell did you do? <laughs> Bruh. <laughs> I'm not generally so bothered by eye stuff, but this is effective. It's a great effect. Probably because he's still able to say, what are you doing here? Poor still. Poor Hank. Gordon tells Hank that to hang in there, he's going to get some help. But Phil says he wouldn't tell anyone about this. His eyes are cold and his voice is low and level. Because if they find out about Hank, they're going to find out about the others. Whoa, whoa, wait, wait a fuck minute. What about the others? Others who? Others are others who? What? Gordon says, you did this. You hired those guys to do this, didn't you? Phil says, Gordon, you're asleep. Gordon continues to accuse Phil of being responsible. But Phil calmly tells Gordon he's asleep. He's got to wake up. Wake up, Gordon. Gordon, will you fucking wake up until Gordon shouts, I am fucking awake to no one. Phil's not there. Phil's not there. <sighs> this for the first time I saw this, I was like, whoa, whoa Phil's not there. Wait a goddamn minute, right? Yeah. McManus yells, hey, from behind, one of, behind the plastic sheeting and makes his way to the clean room and over to Gordon and a very injured Hank. He walks in to ask Gordon what he's who he's talking to and suddenly notices hank lying on the floor how does he not see him immediately i don't know there is a human man and he's just full like grown do, man do, under do, a plastic do, 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 sheet hey who are you talking to who are you talking to what's this oh is that a body on the floor like it's it's a dope it's dopey here i'm like come on dude you'd see the first thing i see when i enter a room I check and see if there's an absence of a dead body, maybe. Like, Mm. what the hell? How do you not notice that? Gordon says nothing, but Dead-Eyed pulls McManus into a chokehold and wrestles him to the floor. He pulls the ice pick thing from Hank's eye, which I just looked up now and know it's called an orbitoclast. So he pulls that Hank's eye. The only CGI in the entire movie is where this is being pulled out of Hank's eye. Yeah. If you look, I mean, really closely, you can tell. But there's no CG in no, the... No, it still made me... It no, no, still no. Yeah, me because, out, so like, Hank, like, slightly worked. lifts his head to show, like, the resistance of the class being pulled out of his eye. That's, That's the, the only CGI, though. That's it. That's so great. I know. So Gordon flashes to a memory of attacking Hank. He's in a trance-like state, and Hank smiles at him from in, from within the tunnels the night he collected his treasure. He laughs nervously and asks, what are you doing here? Simon says, do it, Gordon, and Gordon rams the ice pick through McManus's eye. The doctor asks, why did you do it, Simon? Because Mary let me, Doc, they always do. Phil's voice echoes at Gordon. You know what I wouldn't do, Gordon? I wouldn't tell anyone about this because they would find out about Hank and they're going to find out about the others. Phil runs in to talk to Gordon right after he discovers the wall containing all of the photos of his family. I found Hank Gordon, and he's real hurt, and he says you did it to him. Gordon looks at Phil perplexed. He yells as if being attacked 
and the scene jump cuts away. Okay, I am so sorry. This to me is a plot hole or something because Hank did not say Gordon did this to me. I don't think Hank said anything. I don't think he did either. Because he can't. Because he couldn't. Because all he can say is, what are you doing here? Because he We'll just keep going. Oh, We're almost there. It's painful. It's painful. I want to scream it from the rooftops. Okay. Phil lies on the floor in the first plastic quarters like area. I'm not sure what to call it. Like a segregated little section made of plastic. He appears to be bleeding from a head injury from an attack we did not see. Side eye. In the next scene, we see Mike walking through the theater. Gordon comes up through the stairwell and attacks him and kills him. Gordon echoes, who did this to him? He brought it on himself. Wrong place, wrong time. Mike can be seen leaning against the wall inside the next plastic stall. Eyes open, super dead. Mm -hmm. So Mike is definitely dead and we definitely saw the attack. Gordon asks, where are the others? As the killing of Jeff is next and that's all i want to say because i hate it he went in for an uncle hug sad face (laughs) he went in for an uncle hug and got box cutter slash knifed somehow somewhere you don't see exactly where because when you see jeff's body it is face down and bloody in the next all over yeah yeah gordon stares at the plastic wall sailing off the next room phil says gordy i need you to open your eyes now wake up and remember Gordon is in the car across the street from his house. He grabs the bag holding the flowers and champagne and heads inside. Wendy says, flowers, they're lovely. Watch out, crying, smashing pot, boiling water. Gordon cries out, and then the sounds of Wendy screaming, stabbing sounds, a dog yelping, and a baby. As Simon demands, do it, Gordon? Not a sound of a baby not being a baby anymore. To Gordon's anguished screams. Gordon stares at the plastic at the end of the road. No more to see. No more rooms to explore. The camera pans to Ward A corridor and the familiar chair as Gordon stands in front of the pictures of his wife and child and talks to Wendy through a cell phone with no plastic casing and no battery. No, when he you actually see when he's choking out McManus a few minutes earlier, he falls on the holster. And so the phone that he's been using to, quote, call Wendy is broken. And he's just trying to talk through this broken faceplate of a phone. Wendy, I just want to say I'm sorry for what happened. I'm so lonely here. He begs to come home to hold Wendy to hold his baby. Can you forgive me, Wendy? He asks the broken cell phone as he places his bloody fingertips on her picture. The camera cranes a bird's eye view of the sprawling hospital property. The doctor asks, and where do you live, Simon? I live in the weak and the wounded. The fucking end. Fade to black. So, my sister. (laughs) Yes, my sister. (laughs) What did you think about session nine? Dude. (laughs) So, I remember the first time watching this movie, and again, it wasn't, I mean, maybe five years ago. I don't know, something like that. I remember having my mind completely blown because the way they set up the movie 
is you're supposed to suspect, suspect Phil the whole time of orchestrating something of, you know, Gordon's like, he's talking to these guys behind my back. Then we find out that something happened to Hank and we know that Phil hated Hank. And then suddenly he turns up with this thing in his eye and Phil's like, I, I mean, he brought it on himself, whatever. So the, the shot of when like you realize that Gordon is talking to no one, you're like, what the fuck like what it's so it's i mean i'm not gonna i'm not gonna put it on the same level twist of like he was dead the whole time but this was a this was just a great movie i love a good mind fuck movie you know that sometimes that is really my favorite kind of horror because to me that is 10 times scarier than any decapitated head or disemboweled body or whatever i love things that mess with my mind this movie messed with my mind like i said i had only seen it once before i made the mistake of not immediately doing a a, a rewatch the first time because this is almost the kind of movie you want to watch it go in knowing nothing see it and then immediately go back for the breadcrumbs Absolutely. you know lots of movies i feel like that have a twist like that you go oh shit wait i bet if i watch this again i can see where they were probably leading me in this direction i should have done that the first time but this this for the podcast was my breadcrumb rewatch i love this movie i feel like not enough people know about it um it's a little bit i mean it's not old old older but it's from 2001 right 2001 yeah um more people should watch this movie if you like a good psychological horror if you like creepy settings if you like a hint of reality with your creepiness you know based on the the danvers hospital and all that highly recommended love this movie we'll watch it again i'm gonna watch it again because this this movie did it to me again because it did the same thing to me the first time i watched it where it was the mind fuck and i was like oh man like feels like this snakey kind of guy mm-hmm. and he's like aggressive and yeah like whatever and like in the end you're like oh my god was phil never there and then i watched this movie through this time and i started to really dissect everything phil was doing in every single scene and i've changed my mind and I think that Phil set this all up. Okay. All of it. Okay. I'm not saying that Gordon didn't commit the murders. I think Gordon did commit murders. I don't think Phil killed anybody. No, I, I, and none but. of this, none of the theories that I found or thought of point to anyone other than Gordon committing these murders. Gordon's physical body. But the more I get to know Phil, the more I'm starting to like get little clues about Phil. Mm-hmm. Phil's a narcissist. He yeah. He goes heavy narcissistic energy. Yeah. And they made a specific note to point out mortified pride. Mm-hmm. Phil is the one that po- points out the seclusion in the beginning of the movie. Phil is the one that stops to ask what the hydro tanks are about. Phil is the one that seems to be interested in in pointing in the direction of these little, like, creepy moments. Mm -hmm. And there's a telling look that he gives to Greggs when Greggs is going on and on and on and on about the history. Mm -hmm. It's this sort of, like, pursed fucking shut up already moment. Mm -hmm. Um, And you kind of get the impression that, like, Phil wanted Gordon to be here for this, like, these sort of macabre talks. Because he's working him 
from this angle. Mm-hmm. He knows Gordon's tired. Mm-hmm. He has a young baby who has an ear infection right. or whatever. He knows that he's slipping at his job. He doesn't want him work. He doesn't want him running the show anymore because he did get, he did uh, screw them out of the last two gigs because mm-hmm. he bid too high. Right. He also like is too overly concerned with like hiring family or keeping people around that Phil doesn't think is very Our useful work, in the yeah. business. So Phil Phil has a motive. Mm-hmm. The motive is there. I also know that Phil is incredibly smart. He feels like he's above this type of work, or he's definitely above getting ordered around by people like Hank or any anybody mm-hmm. like that. Yeah, and he's the second in command because they all do defer to Phil if Gordon's not around. I think that Phil uh placed those photos there. Obviously, he got the photo out of his wallet. I think that Phil set up the this little walking tour and with Greg's knowing full well that that stuff is going to be working on it from the angle. Obviously we know that Gordon is a, a religious man because Emma was christened. So I think they, there were little breadcrumbs left around to make him think that he was getting possessed by the devil through lack of sleep and all of the things that he was being put through. Mm-hmm. And I, I think he was screwed over until he cracked. That's what I think happened. I think Phil was behind this whole thing. That's what I think. think And I don't think Phil is dead. I think we didn't see him. We didn't see him dead. We just saw a man lying on the ground with a puddle of blood or red slime. I don't know if that he was dead. We never saw his attack. We saw everyone else's attack. Yeah, that's true. That's true. That is not any of the theories I found online. Oh, like, not God. even close. And I'm convinced that this is what happened. And I am not at all convinced at all that that is what happened. Okay, so what... Tell me some So, theories. So I'm going to do the three main ones. Okay. Um, theory one is that uh, it's, it's a more paranormal theory. So that Simon wasn't actually an alter or an alternate personality of Mary Hobbs, but like a demon or some kind of entity that possessed her, um, which is why it kind of was able to move between her and then later Gordon. Yeah. Um, it's a demon that, you know, pushes people to their breaking points, causes them to act, you know, like when you get that urge when you're driving down the highway and you're like, what would happen if I just jerked the wheel to the right? You know, it's right. it's the demon that makes you or i say demon i mean it could whatever it is causes you to act on those impulses it had been obviously most recently inside mary hobbs we know because we saw her gravestone that she died at the hospital um but so was kind of just in the hospital waiting when gordon entered in simon says i live in the weak and the wounded who is more weak and wounded than gordon when he first enters that hospital and what is the first voice he he hears simon's like hello gordon like i've been freaking waiting for you so you know that was i look i bought into that i'm not saying i buy into it i actually don't buy into that i think it's an excellent theory theory. it's not what i think that's what i thought in the beginning there is the previous patient theory that Gordon used to be a patient at Danvers. The timing would have worked out yeah. if, you know, if they shut down in 85, Gordon's at an age where he could have been a young man, been released, whatever. 
that there's a scene when Griggs is doing the walkthrough with them where, you know, he's showing them around and then Gordon goes to take the lead to the next area. And Griggs is like, no, no, no. Like, let me let me show you yeah, where we're going. Know. So Gordon really seems to know the layout of the place extremely well. He knew Mary Hobbs while they were patients together. He heard the stories from her about what happened to her. He met all the alters. When he goes back into the hospital, he's reminded of her when he sees where she used to stay. When he sees This is all her, part of the theory. This is all part of the theory. Yeah. When okay. he sees the wheelchair outside of her seclusion, it pops back. And he, the voice says, Simon's voice says, hello, Gordon. Like, remember me? I've been here. You know me. That exists in Gordon's mind because he has a sick mind. If he was, in fact, a previous patient. So he would hear Simon's voice and be like, Simon was the one that protected Mary and helped Mary to to take care of things and whatever. Okay. Um, there's also part of this theory, and I don't buy into this one at all, but this is just a part of this, that the crew was actually not real. That Gordon showed up with Phil to bid for the job, didn't get the job. And that when you see the crew, when you see Hank and Mike and Phil and Jeff all show up to do the job, that it's really just Gordon there kind of working at the hospital on his own, that he, he's kind of he's kind of already lost it. Because the thing is, the night that he got the job, that's when he broke and killed Emma and Wendy and the dog. Right. And so when he comes back, he's just broken. Right. Um, the reason people kind of lean towards this theory is because there's that one scene where Mike calls Jeff princess and Jeff's like princess. Like, what are you talking about? Mike's like, what? And that the crew is supposed to represent different parts of like the like what the altars represent to Mary. The reason Jeff is princess is because he's the innocence. He's the young guy. He's the new guy. You get um, Mike, Mike is Billy. Mike, Mike is, is Billy because what did you say yourself? He's the, he's observer. the observer. He he's is the eyes. So there's that theory. That's a good theory. That is a good theory. This is the theory I think. I mean, this is mine. I'm a skeptic. I don't buy into a lot of, I mean, just in my real life, like paranormal, whatever, whatever. Gordon was under stress. We know this. Gordon had a kid with an ear infection. He's obviously an older first time father. He's got a failing business. There's so much stress that he's under. He practically did everything, but just tell the guy he'd do the job for peanuts because he just needed the job. Something about the Danvers environment, because it is a heavy environment once you know the history of that building yeah. and the things that went on there, that basically it just, it broke him. He finally broke. That's it. That it basically happened exactly as you see it. You were looking at a guy whose mind had snapped. And the thing is, it was like once he had killed Emma and Wendy, which is the first thing that he did, he was lying to himself yeah. about it happening, obviously, because he was always saying like, oh, yeah, Jeff, no, Wendy's fine. She's just tired. He keeps trying to call her on the phone. He's talking to nobody. She's not there. She's dead. So he's just broken. So there are so, and those yeah. those are just the three main theories I found. There are so many I will, others. I will give you a couple, one, possibly two more pieces of evidence why I think Phil, still, why I still believe that Phil is the one behind I this. love I, you. 
I, I do not agree with you, but I do want to hear everything you have to say. I know you don't, and no, that's No, that's what's so fun about this movie. I'm yeah. so excited. Anyway, please tell me. <laughs> there was another scene where Hank was, was talking to Jeff, and mm-hmm. he was like, make sure you have an exit plan. Exit plan, right. He mentioned that Mike is going to maybe probably go back to law school, and yeah. um, that he has a fucking exit plan because whatever he found, he found dead people's cash, so he's fine. Right. And he said, Phil has an exit plan. He said a real crazy one, too, and I bet he'll let... Yeah, he'll tell, tell you about all, it someday. I bet he'll tell you all about it someday. Right. Phil was working an angle. So I know See, I took that to be that like Phil was working the angle of taking over the business. Like that was his exit plan. I still think that that was his exit plan. But he executed it in a way that was murderous. <laughs> I think he executed like, completely I diabolical. He, I don't think he necessarily intended for Gordon to kill his wife and kid. I think that that went way further than Phil intended. But I do think that Phil was trying to push the buttons and make Gordon loses shit a little bit. Yeah. I think really, I do think that Phil is a a major manipulator in this movie. And I think he's real. I don't think he's fake. I don't think that no, no, Phil no, was I never there. No. None of that. I don't think any of that. Like I said, that's the the whole him, you know, Gordon being a previous patient and all. I think it's a very cool theory. I don't yeah. agree with it. Like, that's not my and theory I, at honestly, all. Honestly, it could, it could be that... Like you said, I will I will uh, concede to this fact. Phil didn't lead him to kill everybody, but he led him to kill everybody. Like, right. maybe like not he, knowing... he pushed him beyond a breaking point. We just didn't know that that breaking point was like mass murder. It was mass murder, <laughs> right. No, so I, can, I, can I think that. that Phil was actually totally working an angle because why was Phil paying off those kids? I that think... is a straight... Okay, me... I... It could have, yes, either been. I think he was just buying weed because we see him smoking weed later. I think that's possible. I also think that he could have been paying those kids to put the graffiti up, not talk to talk, have a heavy talking to them about the graffiti. Because there was weird graffiti in places. And some of it said, like, some of it said stupid shit, such as Satan rules. I think that there were things put in place that were meant to, like, fuck with Gordon's head. I mean that. I think that's possible, although I will just say, you know, I watch a lot of urban exploration videos and all graffiti looks fucking stupid like that. No matter where you go. Like, we saw a pair of boobs and a dick on the wall at one point. I'm like, yeah, nope, that tracks. Oh, look, it says subscribed to PewDiePie. (laughs) Right. Jesus. So, I'm exhausted. With all of that said, how many days are you renting this movie for? Okay. I'm renting it for the full 10 days. Mm Mm-hmm. I'm I'm paying the late fees on it. I might be like accidentally forgetting to ever return this movie. I'm not <laughs> giving this one back. So this is a 10 in your book. This, this is, is a, a 10. This is a, absolutely a 10 because it's everything that I look for in a movie. Yeah. The performances were great. The use of the... I agree with you completely. I agree yeah. with you completely. For me, I'm not running it a full 10. This is not a 10 movie for me. This is a nine-day rental for me. I know you're 10. No. Oh, you know. Oh, well, I mean, I have very few 10s. This is not one of them, but this is this is up there. Yeah. This is up there to the point where I kind of almost begged you to do this movie for the podcast. I was like... And every time I was like session nine, you thought I was talking about district nine, which I think is really funny. That's a very different horror movie. 
Oh my gosh, I had so much fun talking about this with you. I will definitely watch this in the future. And I'll, you know what? I think maybe I'll rewatch it every time with an eye for a different theory, just Same. for fun. That wraps it up for this episode, listeners and lurkers. Thanks for joining us here on The Last Isle. What did you think of this week's episode? Let us know on all our social media channels, at Last Isle on Facebook and Twitter, and at Last Isle Pod on Instagram. We look forward to hearing from you. We'll be back next week with a new episode. So sit back, cuddle up with your obituclast, and grab your acceptance letter to Casino School, and come peruse the selection of movies in the last aisle. See you soon. Bye.